Metaverse Land Grabs, Digital Agendas in Healthcare, A Case Study of Energy Transformation in the UK and Why Digital Transformations Fail. Those are the main things we'll cover here in today's episode of Transformation Ground Control. This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberly. Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 94. This is the weekly podcast that covers everything you need to know about digital transformation, including the people, process, technology, and strategy side of transformation. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm your host today. I'm the CEO of Third Stage Consulting. We're an independent consulting firm that helps clients throughout the world with their digital transformation journeys. And with me, as always, is my co-host, Kyler Cheatham. Kyler, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Great to have you again and a great episode planned for you here today. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday on LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. And you can also find it on all the audio podcast platforms throughout the world. So whatever platform you prefer for podcasts, be sure to check us out and subscribe to us. And we've got a great show for you today. We're going to start off with some hot topics and trending topics in the digital transformation space. We're going to have a guest later in the show uh, named Marcus Harris, who's an attorney who's going to chat with us about why digital transformations fail and is going to provide an attorney's perspective of why they fail and what you can do to mitigate risk and avoid some of the disasters that organizations oftentimes experience. And then later in the show, our third segment, we're going to have a group of college students actually on the show. We're actually going to play you a clip of a recording uh, that we did with some college students from Colorado State University, which is near where Third Stage is based. And we're going to talk about the future of digital transformation consulting. So if you're interested in digital transformation consulting, you'll, you'll want to stick around Till the third segment later in the show. But before we get to our guest, uh, Kyler, what are some of these hot topics you have in store for us? Yeah, absolutely. So a lot's going on, especially in the metaverse. Um, we talk about that uh, a lot, but I want to kind of specifically get into the, the actual resourcing in real estate in the metaverse today. Uh, so there's this, this trend in land grab, which you think about it because it's not actual tangible land. But it's think about it as almost like retail locations in the metaverse or areas in which you can quote unquote own. So just to give you some stats around how popular this is, um, there's a metaverse analysis uh, consultancy, which I think is just amazing that that already exists. Um, and it's called DAP Radar. And they did a study that showed $1.93 billion worth of cryptocurrency has been spent buying virtual land in the past year alone. And um, $22 million of that was spent on 3,000 parcels of the land in the Bullocks. So I, if you don't know what this is, there's um, a couple different areas of the metaverse that are almost like cities or neighborhoods or, or those types of, <laughs> of pieces. And so it sounds a little far-fetched, but it is a main trend among brands that are already making money there. So to give you one um, case study or a couple case studies around there, uh, Decentrala Land launched in 2020, and these parcels of land are selling for 
thousands, sometimes millions of dollars. There's been um, lux luxury fashion brands uh, that have bought storefronts there. For example, um, in crypto metaverses, Adidas, uh, Warner Music, Gucci are some of kind of the multinational companies that are buying land and building experiences to promote their products and services. You also see big gaming platforms like Minecraft and Fortnite, which isn't as surprising. It's that's kind of a, an ecosystem in which they thrive in. Uh, so to give you, again, how successful this has been for some of these, these um, brands, we see Gucci Town, which is owned by Gucci, has over um, three or, or 36 million, excuse me, visits since it launched a year ago. And while Nike Land has recorded more than 25 million in 11 months. So these are actual consumers. They're spending real money. But it's all really managed and functioned through blockchain. So that is really my kind of my question or topic point for you, Eric, is we, we've kind of seen blockchain go through peaks and valleys over its success and, and what that looks like, specifically in the enterprise business technology. But it seems like the metaverse really might be the lifting point to where blockchain becomes a, a main strategy in virtual retail or virtual experience. So wanted to see kind of what your thoughts were on the future of blockchain and knowing some of these big global brands have already kind of established a processes of making money in a virtual metaverse. Yeah, I think the, honestly, I think the, the adoption of metaverse might take a little longer than some of the other more feasible or short-term feasible uh, use cases or potential use cases of blockchain. So for example, uh, food production, food manufacturing, they're already starting to use blockchain to be able to provide that traceability that oftentimes was a manual processor. You relied on broken data and imperfect systems to track. So blockchain has been a way to uh, mitigate some of that risk and to, and to provide some additional security and traceability uh, for, for food manufacturing. But one that I would think, and I, I don't want to totally shift gears, but um, recently in the United States and Israel and other parts of the world, there's, there's been elections, political elections. And I've always wondered why blockchain isn't used in elections because it's such a secure way to, um, um, to provide identity and to validate people's identity and to, and to trace transactions. So you think about stuff that involves anything to do with identity or any complex supply chain. I feel like those are like, that's low hanging fruit where blockchain could be used right now. And if you could get people using blockchain on a widespread scale now in some of those low-hanging fruit areas, then I feel like it, you know you have time to kind of wait for it to catch up or for the metaverse to catch up to the rest of the world. But having said that, I think long-term, that could be um, a, a really interesting use case for sure. I'm still a little skeptical. I'm still trying to figure out how feasible the metaverse really is. Mark Zuckerberg obviously uh, thinks highly of it and is, is kind of banking his entire company on, on the future of the metaverse. Um, so, you know, he's smarter than I am, presumably. So I'll, I'll kind of follow his lead on that, but I'll be curious to see how it unfolds for sure. Absolutely. Well, I, I think blockchain is sometimes confusing because it has so many use cases and it's not just one area. So to your point, that authentication factor that blockchain provides as a functionality, as opposed to just being within the cryptocurrency place. Um, and I think the future of at least the election process that we've seen on um, on multinational levels with just the election finishing in Brazil, uh, it's election day today as we're recording this in the United States. Um, 
that is is something that will be a, a main point of conversation in making sure that that we can do that with integrity and most importantly with visibility and that's really what that that provides um yeah. so definitely a, a, a great use case for that too yeah absolutely well, good. Well, let's talk a little bit about healthcare, another kind of industry that's going through a, a large digital transformation. We've seen that obviously in the last two years with the emergence of telehealth and just the digitization of that in, entire overall patient healthcare um, industry, not to mention the interoperability around attaching systems, medical records, those types of testing. And then lastly, with emerging technologies through AI and that type of thing. So they're obviously going through a, a huge technical revolution. And uh, so I, I did some research around kind of the, the overall digital agenda in healthcare and what that looks like and how that's being strategized. Uh, so th I came up with basically four different work streams if a healthcare industry or a healthcare company needs to go through a digital transformation. I thought we could talk through a few of them. Sure. So some of the leaders in healthcare technology is the number one is knowing where your organization stands today. So that current state approach, understanding what that, that looks like as far as where you are. Um, and then two is focusing on the end goal. So making sure you understand the stages in which you want to mature as a business or the services that you want to be able to offer patients or clients. Uh, three is setting priorities with um, technology and prioritizing all of those different pieces of how you're going to integrate, how you're going to have a, a core healthcare system um, and that what, what that looks like. And then uh, the fourth one is the one I kind of really want to dig into uh, and go into more detail. So this one is work with transformative partners. Um, so basically, this research says that they need to go away from supporting IT projects and move towards empowering change and creating a digital culture in healthcare as opposed to, you know, the doctor comes in the room, writes some things down, it's the nurse's job to then translate it or the medical assistant, but being able to really go through that entire process. So I'll give you a quote from one of the, the technology executives in healthcare that they, was involved in this research in this poll. And he said, previously, the IT department enabled a laptop to connect to Wi-Fi or provision servers. That's no longer the case. They are now creating partnerships with startups that are advancing the speeds in which digital transformation is delivered to internal customers, the doctors, the nurses, the clinicians, and ultimately the patients. So that is a, a an approach that I feel like is really innovative on the healthcare side because there's there's been a lot of traditional healthcare platforms that people have just used and it's been one of those industries much like wireless or um, or finance or those different pieces it's kind of like this is how it is so the customer needs to meet the technology it sounds like that's really transitioning in this industry so wanted to get your reaction specifically to that fourth initiative and the overall understanding that IT does have a, a main lens in, in healthcare, not just in creating a, a database for patient records, but also being a patient customer experience tool. Yeah, I think that's super interesting, something that's sorely needed, uh, at least in, in Western medicine, which is what I'm familiar with. Um, but I, I do think uh, it's super interesting as you were talking, I was thinking about how not only is data siloed that prevents or undermines a positive customer experience, 
but you also have culturally in the healthcare system and other fields as well, like engineering perhaps, or other fields where there's highly educated people in the healthcare field, you have people generally that are specialists, really smart people. They have their, their niche, you know, that area that they focus on and they don't necessarily think outside of the box or they don't necessarily collaborate with other specialists the way they, they could. And so I think providing technology to enable that more, you know, global view or the more, more holistic view of a, of a customer and, it, and the customer experience can be super positive, but you need to change the culture and change the way people think too. You have to, which is really hard, especially the more educated, the more tenured someone is, the harder generally it is to get them to change their behavior and to think more holistically and to maybe admit vulnerability that they, they don't have an answer and they need to turn to another specialist or they need to turn to technology to, to look for data that might help them ascertain what the problem is. But um, I think it's a, that's the hard part is that cultural change. So I think the technology is great. I think it's good to focus on the customer experience, but you have to do more than just put in good technical tools to make that happen in the healthcare field and other, other fields as well. As an executive, Eric, that might be going through and championing this change, how hard is it to manage and create change in an organization that does have that tenured academia or that overall um, just level of PhD, MD, uh, that type of, of different culture? Is that harder or is it easier? I know that's kind of a black and white question, um, but what are some considerations? I think generally it is harder. Um, you know, some of the hardest or the most difficult clients that, that we work with as a team and as a company oftentimes are the ones that are the really highly educated ones, the ones that you would think would be easier to change, you know, because they're highly educated, they'll understand the value of technology. Um, they, you know, they they can roll with the punches or whatever. Um, a lot of times that's not the case. A lot of times it, it kind of works against you to where you have uh, people that are that are set in their ways. They, they've got their area of special uh, specialty. They don't necessarily care about other disciplines and and I'm generalizing, of course, but and I'm in some cases painting an, an extreme picture. And not all healthcare professionals are like this, but I think it's it's just hard when you have the the specialization in healthcare that you see a lot again in Western medicine. Um, it's hard to cha transition from that specialization where I pride myself, I'm rewarded, I'm recognized for my depth in one area, to now say, well, guess what? You have to look more holistically at the entire you know, the complete customer experience and the complete patient, you know, what, you know, what, what some of the, what some of the challenges might be. I have a, a just a recent personal example. My, my mother-in-law uh, was in, who lives part-time in Michigan. And this is my wife's mother. She, uh, she had kidney stones recently and, but she didn't know it at the time. She went to the doctor, she had pain in her uh, side and they ran all these tests. They couldn't figure out what it was. And they, they thought maybe she had a hernia or something like that. And so they, it, they just totally misread a really common phenomenon, which kidney stones are not that uncommon. So it's just a good example of how, you know, it's kind of a breakdown in the, in the healthcare system. And she's got great healthcare. She, she went to a good hospital, a good practitioner or whatever. Um, but I think that's a good example of how, you know, had that person thought to either talk to other people or pull data or look at in a database of symptoms or use AI to potentially diagnose it. There's a lot of blind spots that could have been uncovered, uh, both from a technical perspective, but also in the way uh, healthcare providers think about healthcare. Yeah, absolutely. That diagnostic process, even though it's a hard science, can sometimes be a bit of an art. <laughs> and hopefully, yeah. you know, just getting 
that data, both quantitative and qualitative, in some sort of interoperable system that can go through different providers to hospitals to, you know, really following the patient's digital journey throughout their entire lifetime can lead to things like more preventative care. Uh, so hopefully, you know, as someone that always has to see, you know, the pot at the end of the rainbow, that that's something that that we're able to do within the healthcare system and and bring it to a, a global uh, opportunity to be leveraged by technology because obviously ton of opportunity there, but I think it's really refreshing to see executives within this really siloed system that is, you know, incredibly important to understand the importance of the patient experience and throughout the entire journey. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. That's a, that's good news. I think it's, if, if the healthcare system keeps moving that direction, I think that can only mean good things in the future. Agree. Um, well, let's jump into a more detailed case study that I wanted to cover with you and our audience today. And the reason I really wanted to look at this in detail is it features a lot of things that we talk about on trending tech. It features sustainable tech. It features energy. Um, it features merger and acquisitions and overall technical customer experience. Uh, so I want to spend a little time diving into this and then kind of get your opinion on that. Sure. So this case study uh, was featured as a well-established energy supplier with millions of customers. It really transformed itself into an enterprise startup with a whole new platform, um, renewable, sustainable energy, and a new technical model. So this is this group is called uh, Eon in the UK. So it's part of the Eon Group. It's Europe's largest energy company group. Um, and at the start of the global pandemic, Eon UK announced that it will be migrating all of its customers onto the EN and then N Power supplier brands. And they started that with a new brand called Eon Next. So they merged all of their kind of subsidiaries onto one platform. Um, and this migration took place after Eon had taken over one of its its former rivals, N Power to um, basically uh, absorb them in a merger and acquisition. So in 2019, the UK power company actually became the first energy company to switch all of its domestic electricity to renewable energy. Again, that sustainable tech, really focusing on that. And the big story here is it had no extra cost to its customers, which is a big barrier when it comes to full renewable energy and the rising cost of energy prices. Um, it's fiercely competitive on the UK energy market, and it wanted to improve its service and the variety of offerings to its customer, grow its customer base, and increase speed in that ever-evolving regulatory environment. So they... Their first step was choosing a technology platform, which is called Kraken Technology. And I don't know if you've you've heard of it, but I hadn't heard of it before. Um, but Kraken, I either. well, good. Well, maybe we can do a, a video, hear a video in the future on it. Um, what is Kraken? It is an advanced future energy customer to cash cloud platform. And it really became the backbone of this large scale digital transformation. It's really the industry's first, they call it universal agent model that unlocks a variety of customer journey and lifestyle visibility. So as you know, one of the biggest pain points in the energy industry is just the overall visibility of the customer journey, not only internally, but externally as well. 
So migrating these customers from a number of different platforms uh, with minimal disruption was their main goal. And they actually achieved an excellent customer service ranking after doing this migration for two years. They were at a big risk of customers leaving if the migration was not done right. Uh, what they utilized is a copy design digital team that played a key role in making sure that was successful. So basically think about it as they wanted the user interface to be very similar. They wanted the design to be intuitive and they wanted that digital platform to be really clear for their customers. Finally, the, the last piece of this case study showcases the um, end state architecture. So once the customer migration was complete, the attention turned on to decommissioning those legacy systems successfully and sensitively. So that means making sure that you weren't kicking customers off of a platform that they are really loyal and inclined to use, understanding and explaining the opportunity of this newer platform. Um, so I, I wanted to uh, actually give you a quote, again, I'm all up in quotes today for some reason, from <laughs> Michael Lewis, who is the Eon UK um, chief executive officer um, about this digital transformation. And he said, this, it, this must be the largest and fastest customer migration ever undertaken in the UK. And the fact that we achieved such, such success during a global pandemic, while it's delivering excellent customer satisfaction scores is a massive achievement. Customers are what move, or excuse me, customers are this move, what this move is all about. And it's more important to give the current costs in our current cost of living crisis. We're still focusing on energy transition and getting the UK to zero carbon future, which is what our work with CrackOn team and build more effective and responsible relationships with our customers while understanding their needs and responding in effective ways. So th that was a long-winded case study around kind of the energy merger and acquisition moving platforms, migrating to a cloud-based system, all while bringing the renewable energy to the forefront. So I spent a little more time on that than I typically do with our hot topics because I thought it was a really interesting use, use case of a lot of things that we talk about in the digital transformation space in a very trending in industry. So wanted to kind of just get your your feedback on that case study. Did anything pop out to you? Is this, is this something that you feel like um, is an effective model for a lot of different industries and businesses when it comes to their approach on digital transformation or what are your thoughts? Well, it's a super interesting case study, partially because of the industry it's in. So we, we just talked about healthcare a moment ago and how complex and difficult transformation can be in the healthcare space because of tenure. And that's something that's generally true for utilities as well. Generally, you have a highly tenured workforce. You have a very, uh, uh, in many cases, highly educated. You have a lot of engineers, a lot of um scientists or PhD type people that, that need to be on staff. Um, but also, you know, probably even more materially uh, difficult with utilities industry is just the complexity of the systems because you have, it's just different than a manufacturer or a retailer or even a, a healthcare provider, like we talked about before, where utility companies have, they, they by design or by nature have a lot of different systems they have to manage. They have some regulatory systems typically, you have geospatial type systems, they're tracking geospatial data. So all of your 
assets and crews and inventory out in the field to manage substations and power lines and stuff like that. You have systems that have to track that. And then of course, you've got your core ERP systems, you have outage management systems for when there's an outage, how do you trace it back to where the problem is? So it's a pretty, utilities are really complex. I spent about four years of my career focused just on gas and electric utilities throughout the world. And I love that industry, by the way, because it's, it's so fascinating because of that, largely for that reason. So I think the fact that you combine an industry that struggles with change, partially because of tenure, partially because they're highly regulated, they have complex systems, and then you throw in the fact that they're going through an M&A activity. The fact that they did that transformation in two years, is, I find fascinating. I would love to learn more about it or kind of dig into the scope of the project or how did they, how did they manage that much change against those kinds of headwinds? Because that, to me, if you were to ask me, could they have done it in two years? I'd say probably not. That's pretty unlikely that they would have done it in two years, but what you're telling me is they did do it. So um, I think it's super fascinating. I'd love to learn more about it for sure. It's, it's examples like that that I think we could all learn a lot from for sure. Yeah. And, and just to clarify, I don't know if the full transformation happened in two years. The migration of platforms happened in two years. Um, okay. So I still think that that's you know, pretty impressive, um, especially for something as vulnerable as energy. Um, that's a, yeah. a lot to ask customers. But There's a lot at stake. Exactly. And in, in the fact that um, they really had a, cu a customer first approach. I think is absolutely huge in that process because a lot of times we've talked about a few industries today that that hasn't always been historically their approach to technology. Um, but if any of our, our listeners know more about this transformation, um, I will uh, post kind of the link to my sources in the uh, description here and you can kind of dig into that, but we'd love to know more. Um, and then my last question on this, I, I'm genuinely curious about is they look like they went to a best of breed vertical technology approach. Is that something that's pretty typical for utilities or something that, that you would kind of recommend when it comes to a hyper-focused industry? Yeah, I do. I think, uh, you know, of course the commercial off the shelf software vendors will disagree with me and say, Oh no, no, of course their technology can do it all. But I'll say that in the utility space, you, you could have a core back office ERP system that does your financials and accounting and basic inventory management, basic HR, HCM, stuff like that. But like I said, there's these specialized systems around uh, asset management, for example, although I will say some of the larger ERP systems are getting pretty good at asset management. So that's becoming less true. But still, if you, for organizations that are implementing um you know, some tier two or tier three ERP systems, they might need a separate standalone asset management system. And then the geospatial stuff, the geospatial data side of things is super complex. It's really fascinating and interesting because it's not, it's, it's like a different dimension of data that you're, you're trying to manage and it's a different uh, purpose. You're not just trying to track an inventory location and where the inventory is in terms of like a, a numeric assignment of like a warehouse, like for a manufacturer, all they need to know is which warehouse of five warehouses is my inventory in. Whereas in utilities, they've got stuff all over the place. So they've got to know exactly where, you know, like on a map where that inventory is, where the crew is, um, what the assets are that are in the field, um, the predictive maintenance, all the stuff that goes, goes into that. So I think it is common utilities. I say is, is on the high side of the spectrum of industries and types of organizations that are most likely to have a best of breed, um, type of, type of need. So that's, um, 
so yeah, that, that that's my take on it. Excellent. Well, good stuff. Really interesting kind of meaty hot topics. We went into a bit more detail today. Um, but yeah. I think it's a kind of a great setup for a conversation with, with Marcus to understand all of those kind of phase zero type of awareness approaches that you need to understand when actually going into a digital transformation from the contracting side. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd, I'd love to hear from the audience too, before we switch gears, um, maybe in the chat, just drop in the chat. Do you think two years is realistic in this, in this case? Do you think uh, a large utility um, could, could have done this uh, sort of a transformation or a migration in two years? And is it realistic for other organizations to do it? I'd love to hear maybe in the chat, uh, hear what people think of that. Um, but yeah, so let's shift gears. And, and the reason I bring this up, by the way, because in our next segment with Marcus Harris, we're going to talk about realistic and unrealistic expectations uh, potentially being a root cause of why transformations fail. And so we're going to have Marcus on the show after a quick break, and we're going to talk about why digital digital transformations fail. We're going to get an attorney's perspective on that. And uh, Marcus is someone who's been on the podcast in the past, but it's been several months since his last appearance. So we want to dive into this whole um, this whole thread about not just why transformations fail, but more specifically, why are digital transformation failures increasing? So in other words, the rate of failure is trending towards higher rates of failure. And so we want to dissect that and understand why that is. And, and so we're going to dig into that here in just a moment. But first, we'll take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling, the CEO of Third Stage Consulting. And we recently hosted our Digital Stratosphere 2022 virtual event. It's three days of packed content related to digital transformation best practices, about 16 or 18 different workshops and different speakers that are presenting on different topics, everything you need to know about transformation. The, the bad news is you, if you miss that event, the event's over. The, the live event already happened. But the good news, if you've missed it, or even if you did attend it and you want to see replays or you want to catch the sessions you missed, you can do that now by going to stratosphere2022.com. Go to stratosphere2022.com, register. All you have to do is put in your, your name and email address, uh, just a few fields. You get immediate access to all the recordings. And the recordings cover everything from digital strategy, um, software selection, organizational change, process improvement, architecture, data migration, cloud, trends in the industry, um, how to avoid failure, some of the legal aspects to think about, contractual aspects to think about as it relates to your transformation. All that is stuff that you'll get by registering for Stratosphere 2022 replay. And again, go to stratosphere2022.com and you can listen to all the replays of all the workshops that you might have missed at the event. So hope you check it out and uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 94. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. And you can also find us on all the audio podcast platforms as well. So be sure to check us out there. I'm excited for our next guest, who is a return guest who's been on a few times in the past. His name is Marcus Harris. He's with Taft Law here in the United States. Uh, he's someone that uh, I actually got to know by being an expert witness for him. So he's actually a former client on a couple different cases. I, I uh, wrote reports and testified in cases he was involved with. And that's how we sort of developed our professional and personal relationship. And, and we've sort of expanded that relationship over the years. 
as we've gotten to know each other better and realize that we share a lot of the same philosophies. So that's part of why I love having him on the show. And it's always interesting to get an attorney's perspective on this stuff too, because, you know, consultants and attorneys just think different. So getting that, that perspective is super, super important. And another reason why we want to have him on at this time, you know, at this moment in time is because we are seeing that a, a lot of organizations are planning for digital transformations in 2023 and B, digital transformation failures are on the rise. It's something that we're seeing uh, repeatedly in the industry. We're seeing more and more expert witness work, more attorneys reaching out to us because there's a failure in a lawsuit involving a digital transformation. And there's a couple undercurrents or trends in the industry that are leading transformations more towards failure. So even though the technology is getting better, the failure rate's getting higher. And so what we want to do is dissect and understand why is that? Why are transformations still failing? And in fact, why are they failing more than they have in the past? Even though technology is getting better, even though, even though we've got cloud options, we've got you know low code, no code, we've got different platforms and interoperability integration, all this cool stuff we can be using, but yet transformations are failing at a higher rate than ever. So let's dive into that. And, and to help us with that conversation is Marcus Harris from Taft Law. Uh, Marcus, thanks for being here. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm excited to be here and to talk to you again. Absolutely. You've been on our podcast in the past. I think this is probably the third time maybe that you've you've been on. So really appreciate you, you being on here. And uh, you've also presented it in our online events and in-person events in the past. So really appreciate um, collaborating with you again. So I guess just to start, maybe tell us a little bit about your background. What Who, who are you? What do you do? What is What does your law firm do? All that good stuff. Yeah, well, I've got kind of a unique path um, to being an attorney in that, you know, I started out uh, in-house as an attorney at a couple of large software companies, really um, representing those software companies in, in two primary areas. One was you know, negotiating software-related agreements, integration agreements, uh, statements of work, change orders, software licensing, of course, and then, you know, managing and defending them from litigation. Um, so... What, what that does for me at this point in my career is it gives me a really good understanding of venture tactics, um, seeing how salespeople work up close and personal, the things that they've told me, you know, how they try to meet their numbers and, and, and the, the, like I said, the, the tactics they use to sell the software, all of that gives me a wonderful insight into helping my clients today, and this is what I do today, um, you know, recover damages when they've been, been victimized by you know, software that's been oversold or implementations that have gone off the rails. Um, that's pr my primary practice area. I, I'm a, a broadly a general uh, or a, an intellectual property attorney, but within that, you know, is this you know, area of drafting, negotiating these software agreements and litig litigating software failures when they occur. Um, I work for a large kind of general practice law firm called Taft, Statinius and Hollister in Chicago um, with offices all over the country. And you know, we do uh, just about everything, everything you could need from a legal perspective, but my focus is really technology-related work and with a subspecialty in ERP software. Great. Yeah, and that's in fact, that's how you and I met, just being in a relatively small industry in the, in the technology space and have both having similar clients or doing similar types of work, although you're an attorney and I'm not, um, but, but both being involved in digital transformations is how we, we cross paths. Um, so... Yeah. I guess just to start, this is, and this is a really broad question that we could spend the full hour just on this one question, but maybe you could give us a flyover to start. But why is it in general that, 
I mean, well, first of all, let me back up. I, I made the comment early at the beginning of the conversation that one of my predictions for 2023 is that digital transformations will continue to to increase. And I have my own you know, hypothesis for why that is. But I guess, first of all, would you agree with that statement? And, and maybe we can build off that, depending on how you answer that. <laughs> yeah, I, I do. I think they're going to continue to increase markedly in the next few years. Um, and I think there's a variety of reasons that I see in my practice. Um, one of the big ones that I'm seeing now is with the pandemic, there seems to have been kind of a rush to get these integrations moving. And I'm not so sure that either the customer or the vendor conducted the necessary due diligence to go down that path. Okay. You know, people were worried. Let's, let's, you know, sell the software. Let's acquire the technology. Let's integrate it in a timely manner. Um, we don't know what's going to happen. And I think the pandemic in particular has created just a number of challenges to successful implementations. And, and as you are full aware, I mean, you know, software implementations have a very high failure rate. There's a, there's a litany of problems that, that go hand in hand with them. And I think the pandemic, certainly from my perspective and what I see in my practice, just accelerated those and, and, and amplified the issues. And we can get into what those specific issues are. But um, I, I think certainly, you know, the pandemic uh, impacted the implementations and integrations and then really imp impacted negatively the due diligence process, particularly the, the review and selection and then the subsequent negotiation of the contracts that govern that relationship. Is it just that organizations during the pandemic were so, they had so much on their plate, they were so rushed, there was so much happening in the world at that moment that they're sort of rushing through it or is there more to it than that? Well, I think there's more to it than that. I think that's a simplistic way to say it. Um, and really, when you look at more of the nuance, which is what we do in these lawsuits, it's it's really a failure to properly manage. And one, I think it's it's really, you know, just a perfect storm of situations. Um, you have, you know, vendors that are overselling software, they're underestimating the implementation costs. Um, they're, they're, they're essentially, you know, selling the sizzle, right? And there's not a lot of stake there, which they always do. Okay. But here you couple that with primarily remote integrations with the failure to assign uh, the promised uh, consulting team to the implementation. You've got people in, you know, in, in far-flung regions of the earth, you know, India, Mexico, Poland, whatever, you know, trying to do an integration in Denver. And it becomes problematic when it, you know, pre-pandemic, you have a local team or a semi-local team that's coming in on a regular basis, managing it. You know, I, I think that is is one of the primary uh, drivers of the failures that we're seeing. It's just a total mismanagement of a project. Everybody's working remotely and nobody is really um, focusing the way that they typically would on, on a huge digital, digital transformation project. Right. So what you're saying is work from home is not all fun and games. It's not all, uh, you know, there's not all bright upside to working at home. There's also a dark side potentially in this case. Oh, absolutely. I think there's a tremendous start side. I mean, I'm dealing with a failure now where one of the problems is that there was just no management on the vendor side. And I'm sure on the on the customer side, there, there were contributing factors. There always is, right? There's always enough blame to go around when something like this fails. But, you know, we've got a situation where, um, you know, the, the team that was promised was all supposed to be based out of California. And lo and behold, they get into the integration, you know, they keep saying, well, we can't get our team in, they're, you know, they're, they're on lockdown, they're in quarantine, 
Um, there's you know, only certain times where they're available that aren't consistent with mountain time. I mean, it was just absolutely you know, ridiculous. Um, so there's a whole bunch of drivers like that. I think there's some market factors that are contributing to, to uh, the, the problem as well. Uh, there's a lot of pressure from vendors to upgrade, to uh, replace aging systems. Um, you know, they're end of life certain things. So that creates a sense of urgency, which in my view is probably a created sense of urgency to drive revenue. And so, you know, you, you, you put all these things together with the difficulty that you're already facing in an integration and implementation. And like I said, you've got this perfect storm of problems. Yeah. Yeah. And I, it seems like too, that, um, you, you talked about the, the vendors creating this potentially false sense of urgency to, to move to, to the cloud. It reminds me a lot of uh, Y2K. For those of you that remember Y2K 20 years ago, there was a sense of panic in the industry that we have to switch our old systems because, you know, if the two digits switch over to zero zero for for 2000, all the systems might crash. And what was interesting is, you know, the comp- the industry spent you know billion, however many billions of dollars on transformations during that time. A lot of them failed because of the, for the same reasons. Yet you right. look back and you wonder, did we really have to do that? Because I don't know of any instances of failure or, or consequence of not upgrading. And surely there were organizations out there that did not upgrade. So sort of a similar, to me, it's sort of a similar thing now. It's we've manufactured this panic in the industry that we have to move to the cloud. If we're not in the cloud, we're dying and we're falling behind. And it's uh, it's really creating a unhealthy pattern, I would I would say. Would you would you agree with that? Or how, or how, how, how does it affect transformations? Well, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, it, it's this rush to digitize. And I think there's a, there's a comment here in the sidebar and, you know, it asks about, you know, what, what are you seeing more biases, bias in contracting language um, with this rush to digitize it, you know, sneaky language and contracts. And what I see, and this goes to your point as well, you know, with this, with this rush, you know, or even evangelical, like, you know, approach to the cloud, it's, it's really kind of a take it or leave it scenario from a contract perspective. Okay. They give you their document. And they say, well, you know, it's a standard product offering across our customer base, so we can't make any changes to this. And Microsoft is notorious for doing this. Oracle is notorious for doing this. Um, and so you're stuck with a one-sided contract that provides very little remedies um, for you in the event that there's a need to manage that vendor contractually, or God forbid, you've got to file a lawsuit. You know, they've mitigated their, their risk so much and shifted it to you because they refuse to even you know take into account reasonable requests to modify that contract because it's the cloud, right? And that's just all smoke and mirrors in my view. Um, and that I think is very much gonna come home to roost. Um, and there's a lot of nuance associated with that comment. Um, but what, what I do see as far as, you know, sneakiness or, um, you know, slipping things in is and I haven't, I haven't, this has always been the case, but we're seeing it more with this remote concept is that these, these software demos are now being recorded on a regular basis. So you'll actually see as the lawyer, and this is a gold mine for me, um, you'll see the teams, the team's demo, you'll see all the attendees, you'll see who's speaking. And I mean, you know, I, I've always known it was bad, but when you see this evidence in front of you, it's just almost sometimes a smoking gun. I mean, it's, you know, our software can do this. Don't worry about it. Incorporates best practices. We're going to integrate it. It's fully integrated system. Um, you, you know, it's it's uh, it, it's you know, it's going to take all. It, it's going to take into account all of your your digital transformation needs, and we're going to be you know kind of your one stop shop for technology solutions. And you know, you get 
questions, you know, oh yeah, you know, what we've shown you is actually in production, it's real, um, it actually exists and come to find out, you know, you get into the integration and they're actually building this technology that was supposed to be, you know, out of the box or something. So I'm seeing a lot more misrepresentations than I have before. And I don't know if that's a function of all these things that we've been talking about, or if it's just a function of now having more access to these digital tools that record these things. Mm. That's interesting. I, I, that never occurred to me and I hadn't realized that post pandemic, you're just, you're leaving a lot more smoking guns behind, you know, whichever, you know, whatever evidence of potential misrepresentation or he said, she said, now you've got more documentation during the sales cycle. And it seems like a lot of these failures, or at least the litigation that you're involved with, if I understand correctly, um, it, a lot of it is stemmed back to or traces back to the sales cycle. So it, in other words, when, when I've been an expert witness for you or other attorneys, it seems like, you know, one of the first things you do is you go back to the beginning of the sales cycle and usually the dominoes are starting to fall um, at that point. Is that, would you agree with that? Or, or maybe what are some other examples of how that might be true? Well, no, that's, that's exactly right. I mean, you know, the, the way these contracts are structured, it forces you to have to focus on the sales cycle and the representations that were made. And so when they tell you that the software, you know, it, it can, can deliver the, the earth, the star, the sun, and the moon, um, that's what you're looking for as an attorney, right? You want the unreasonable misrepresentations. And, you know, how reasonable is it? Well, you know, it, it's a very interesting nuanced question because going back to my software vendor days, you know, people would say, yeah, did I tell them that the software could do that? Absolutely. And it can, or it could. It's just depending on how much time and money you want to invest in that piece of software to make it do that. They can customize anything, right? So, I mean, you have to go into these things with realistic expectations and understanding, you know, what you're, what you're in for and having done even just a, a minimum of due diligence. If you rely on, on the representations that, that the salespeople are making, you've got to help you because you're going to be in for a real tough time when it comes time to deploy that system or, 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 or use it more importantly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, we're here with Marcus Harris talking about why digital transformations fail and why transformation failures are increasing. We have a lot more to get to, but first we'll take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 94. We're here with Marcus Harris from Taft Law talking about why transformations fail and why digital transformation failures are on the rise. I want to shift gears just for a second and, and look at the audience here. Um, I want to thank everyone who commented on where they're joining from today. We have uh, Mohit from Mumbai on LinkedIn. Thank you for being here. Um, Jordy from Grand Forks, North, North Dakota on LinkedIn. Thank you for being here. Ryan from Denver. Uh, Juice from Netherlands. 
Grand Junction, Colorado, uh, Gassan from uh, Kuwait, a couple of people from a couple more people from Denver. So thank you everyone who uh, is here today and for dropping in the chat where you're you're joining from today. Um, I wanted to to um, get to another audience question here, and it's from uh, a company I've heard of. It's called Third Stage Consulting. Uh, I know them, um, but the Third Stage Consulting says, uh, "What are some uh, main red flags in shifting cloud system contracting?" that organizations should be aware of. So I guess just, you know, looking at the cloud in particular and cloud technology, what are some nuances that are different with cloud solutions that procurement and IT people might not be accustomed to, or what are some of those pitfalls they might fall into contractually? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the major pitfalls in any of these contracts and particularly in the cloud are going to be, you know, the warranties and representations that they're actually making, okay? A warranty in a software agreement is, is two things. It's a warranty of time and it's a warranty of reference. And so when they warrant it, how long does, is, is the warranty period? And if, it's, if it doesn't start until after deployment, after go live, that's problematic, okay? Um, and if it simply references the documentation, it doesn't represent, reference anything that was told to you or anything that's tangible that you have seen, that's another red flag. That's a, that's a standard vendor tactic um, that, that is certainly prevalent in the cloud. It was prevalent in the on-premise environment as well. Um, so the warranty doesn't amount to much, right? You also, you also want to be aware of what the limitations of liability are. You know, if, if this all goes sideways, right? And I've got to sue, how, how much money can I get back? Do I get a refund? Do I get some subset of the money that I've spent? Do I get nothing? And it's going to run the gamut, okay? If you're talking about red flags, I think you need to really pay attention to how willing is that vendor to work with you on unreasonable contract terms? Because to me, I think that sets a tone for the company culture, okay? If they're not willing to work with you to address what are reasonable issues and concerns that you have, then how are they gonna act when you know, they're actually supporting the software, implementing the software for you? you know, what are you getting yourself into? That's something that you really have to be aware of. If you're talking about red flags in, in that are very specific to the cloud environment, I think you really want to focus on uptime guarantees. So remember when you when you're deploying a cloud solution, it's not it's not on your environment, right? It's not on your servers. It's somewhere else. And you have to make sure that it has a certain availability. It needs to be 99.9, you know, 99.5, whatever, whatever is reasonable to you. It's got to be up a certain amount of time. It's got to be accessible and usable by you. And here's where the red flag is. If it isn't, what happens? Okay. What are they going to do about it? A lot of times they'll say, well, you know, we'll endeavor to make it available this much time for this, for this amount of time. And if it's not, um, then we'll endeavor to do something about it. That's a red flag, right? Mm -hmm. you, you want them to, to either, well, you, you want them to fix the issue. And then for the amount of time that it wasn't available, you want to get some sort of a refund or some money back or some sort of a credit without a doubt, right? It's got to be objective and definable. You don't want it to be like, well, you've got to tell me what the issue is. And then if you don't tell me what the issue is within three days, you don't get your credit. I mean, all that's just ridiculous, right? I don't want to get into the total nuances of it because there's a ton of red flags and we could have probably three or four, you know, conversations like this about it. Um, but um, there's a lot of things to be aware of. And I think you know, the goal is to use that contract 
you know, cut through those red flags, deal with them, wrestle them to the ground, have a contract that serves to manage a relationship with that vendor over the life cycle of that product. Because that's, that's, that's one of the ways you set yourself up for success to avoid a digital transformation failure is having a, a contract that serves as a management tool to show them what they're supposed to do when things go sideways. What about the, one, one of the things I remember you presenting or, or talking about in a presentation I've seen you give uh, multiple times at conferences you and I have been at is this, this whole uh, hyperlink clause. Could you, could you talk about that? Cause that's fascinating to me. And it, it always fascinates me that organizations willingly go along with that. Maybe you could explain what it is and why it's a risk. Yeah. And this is not something we used to see in the on-premise world. Okay. So what, what they will do is, you know, the whole goal is to be business friendly, to reduce the sales cycles, to reduce the negotiation time and to give you something that doesn't look menacing that you can just sign. So they'll send you a one page order form um, that looks very, you know, innocuous and um it but but the, the the kicker is that you know on the back page or or somewhere on that document it's going to reference about you know five different urls and those urls are incorporated by reference as a piece of the contract and so if you start clicking them you know the first one clicks to you know a 30 page license the second url clicks to you know 50 page maintenance uh, agreement uh whatever, whatever it is you know, this document is not simple. It's actually super complicated. It turns into, you know, a 200 page contract that if they were to give it to you on paper, you know, you, you would be alarmed. Okay. But because it's presented to you, you know, as a one page, you know, PDF DocuSign, uh, you think, oh, I don't need to send this to my legal department or, you know, I'll send it to my legal department and they should be able to turn this around in a week or so. Um, that is the wrong approach, right? I mean, if you're spending any significant amount of money on uh, a digital transformation, a software product, a vendor, um, you've got to do the due diligence from the legal side to make sure you're mitigating the risk. And, and the, the, the risk mitigation or the amount of legal spend should be directionally proportional to either the cost of, of the solution, <coughs> excuse me, or it should be directly proportional to the amount of risk that that presents. You could be spending, you know, $150,000 on a piece of software that's mission critical and shuts down your business for three months. That's something that you should spend a lot of money negotiating or reviewing, right? Um, so the cost of the, of the solution doesn't necessarily indicate the risk associated with it, but it, it's a, a good guideline. And you've also talked about how some of those hyperlink or URL documents that you're agreeing to, you're signing off on that one pager you talked about, and that one pager refers to other documents that are that are sort of separate but part of that agreement um you've also talked i've also heard you talk about how a lot of times there's a clause in there that says they can update those terms unilaterally could you maybe explain that and what yeah. what the risks are there yeah no and that and that's a, that's a good point i'm glad you brought me back to that that's an incredible problem okay because you think what you have signed is a standard contract an agreement right but there's this clause in there that says, oh, by the way, we don't care what you signed yesterday. Today, we can go ahead and unilaterally change the terms and conditions, and you're bound by it regardless of having reviewed it or not. That's clearly a bad, a bad situation to be in, right? Now, where there's some level of reasonableness is associated with that is, is that the, you know, they, they've got a dynamic product that is being upgraded and updated and being pushed to their customer base. And so there's going to be different pieces of functionality that are going to have 
you know, different governing terms and conditions that they're going to want to put in place. That's one thing, you know, but it's, it's never set up that way. It's always set up as, oh, we can change anything we want at any time. And it's done that way on purpose. That's, that's a big problem. And that's essentially signing a contract that the other side can, can modify at any time without your input. And that's a no go. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that seems uh, extremely risky and open-ended at, at best. Uh, yeah. What, what can organizations do, or, or let me back up, have you seen organizations, especially maybe smaller, mid-sized organizations that just don't have the leverage or the sophistication, the in-house legal counsel, do, can they realistically change or negotiate with a Microsoft or an Oracle or any other big software vendor that might sort of impo- impose their will contractually like that, or, or what have you seen there? You can, but I think I think for, for organizations like that that are spending, you know, not an incredible amount of money, um, you just don't have the leverage. And I think the, the value in having a legal review is understanding the risk that's presented by the contract, picking and choosing what you're going to focus on. So I think if you're dealing with a Microsoft or an Oracle and you're spending $300,000, which is not a lot of money, <clears throat> you're going to have to prioritize, you know, a list of 10 things that you want changed and then you know, just, just identify which ones, which, which of those are the most important and really push for those so that you've got, you know, some understanding of kind of where you're at um, from a risk perspective. And I think, you know, it, you're not going to have a lot of leverage. Um, one of the big red flags as I think about it now, and, what, and this is applicable to a lot of smaller companies, is they finance these deals. And if there's a way that you don't have to do that, I would implore you not to do that because it really creates situations down the road when you're trying to get out of that contract and it just diminishes your leverage because they have acceleration clauses. And so, you know, if you decide the software doesn't work, you don't want to pay for it, um, then everything becomes due and owing, you know, immediately upon 30 days of non-payment and they send you to collections and you've got, it's, it's a, it's a, a more complicated scenario than it needs to be. Right. Yeah. It makes total sense. Um, Gassan on LinkedIn has a, has an interesting question and I'll maybe add piggyback a part two of this question, but can one insure an ERP project in case it goes sour? And if not, you know, what's the, what's the next best thing? That's a very interesting question. And in fact, I've never even, I've never seen that raised. Um, so, you know, kudos to you for bringing that up. I, I have no clue as to whether you can insure against the failure of a project. That's a, that's a good question. That's something I'm going to research. Have you seen that, Eric? I have not. Um, but it, I, I, part of me thinks it would be an interesting business model, but then other, uh, another part of me would be terrified um, if I were the insurance provider because you think of the, these massive payouts that might you know that are likely to be at stake. And um, I, have a, I have a 16-year-old boy, a son, who just turned 16, and he just started driving about two weeks ago. And I'm, he, he has had his car for two weeks. His insurance is through the roof. Obviously, his, his insurance costs more than my wife and I combined. And he's already had his, heart, his car hit once. And so we, we can only imagine it's going to go up even more. So I, it just reminds me of like insuring something that you know has a very high risk of having a problem or a claim on it. Um, I haven't seen it. But you and I have talked about other things in the meantime until maybe there is an insurance policy uh, industry that develops around the, the industry. In the meantime, there's other ways though, that maybe you're not insuring per se through an insurance policy, but there's other ways you can insure and mitigate risk. What are, what are some of those things that you've seen? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think you really have to have a realistic understanding of what you're getting yourself into. Okay. And you have to understand what success is and why you're implementing this technology. Because, you know, there, and I've, I've heard you talk about this, there, there really is no silver bullet, right? And if you're expecting the technology to be a silver bullet, you know, you're, you're, you're doing the opposite of ensuring uh, against failure. And I think you're almost kind of just walking right into an untenable situation. Um, you, you've got to have a realistic expectation of, of how the software is going to drive, you know, business initiatives and business success. Um, because if you don't have that, um, you're, you're, you're going to spend a tremendous amount of money and those vendors are going to take it from you very happily, very willingly to get you to a point where, you know, you've got all this latest and greatest technology that's not even appropriate for your business and it doesn't even help you, you know, I mean, there's, there's different ways to define success and to define failure. Um, you know, from a, from a contractual standpoint, I think it's simple. I mean, you know, put in place the necessary tools to manage that vendor throughout that process and account for all of the things that go wrong. Now you're not always going to be in that position, but if you, if you're dealing with a reasonable vendor, they're going to take into consideration a good chunk of, of your issues and concerns. And so I think that's, from, from a legal perspective, that's certainly one of the ways to do it. Yeah, and in sort of a, a follow-on question that Kassan also uh, asked on LinkedIn is he's he's making a comment here, but I'm curious to see what you think or what your reaction is, Marcus. But he says, on the next ERP project, I will schedule three months for contract reviews and negotiations and two months for, for implementation. And, you know, two months seems a little aggressive on the implementation side, but I think his point here is that you know, he, he might spend more time than you might otherwise think on the negotiation and, and contract review part of it. Um, maybe help us understand, you know, how long could, could an organization realistically, if they do it right and they're thorough and they're pushing back, they're negotiating, they're protecting themselves. If they do it right and they're not rushed, what's, what's like a general time frame or range of time it might take to do that? I think two to three months is realistic. Um, and it depends on the nature of the agreements and, and you know, what, what's going on. I mean, if you've got you know, multiple documents and things like that, um, you know, you're going to be at the higher end of that estimate. And if you only have one, you're going to be at the lower end, but you know, you, you, the attorney needs time to really go through these things, have an understanding of what the technology is, what risk it presents to the business, how the business intends to use it, and then understand what functionality is mission critical and to make sure that that functionality is represented appropriately in the contract. Um, and it's, it's very basic things that nobody even thinks about. I mean, you know, you say you're buying, you know, SAP, uh, S4 HANA or, 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 or whatever. Um, well, what does that mean? What are you actually buying, right? I mean, is there a list of functionality that's identified in the order form or the schedule? You know, which, which of that functionality is important to you without which you would not have gone forward with signing the contract or buying the software? You know, things like that are just fundamental that that need to be spelled out. And, you know, and I think you've got to take the necessary time to be able to, to get into the granularity of it. I don't think you want to negotiate for the sake of negotiating. But, you know, these companies are used to having their contracts negotiated. And I think if it's a simple agreement, you should allocate a month. If it's more complicated, two to three months. And I think that's right. Um, there's a whole other side of his question about, you know, whether a two a two month implementation is 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 reasonable or not. And I think, you know, from a software vendor's perspective, yes, yeah, sir, we can, we can implement our technology really, really fast. Whether you're going to be able to use it in any meaningful way 
you know, within two months or six months is a totally different question. So, yeah. 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 They're, they're on the hook oftentimes for delivering working functioning technology, but the technology working and the technology working for your business are two different things. So yes. how do you, how do you protect against that? You know, cause I, I could be a software vendor and deliver, deliver a perfectly designed bug-free solution that's stable. It performs, does everything that it should do, but it doesn't align with my business. It creates disruption in my business. It creates other problems that of course are unintentional. How do you bridge that gap between, you know, working technical solution and working business solution? Well, you know, I, I think you, you've got to have kind of a patchwork quilt solution to that. And what I mean by that is you want to make sure that in your statements of work, um, you've got, you know, robust user acceptance testing criteria, and it's all spelled out as to, you know, what happens when it doesn't meet the, um, you know, the uh, specifications or the, the mutually agreed upon you know, development document that you put in place for the piece of functionality. Um, you want to make sure that you've got a robust and reasonable warranty. You want to make sure you've got change orders that can address all of that stuff. And it's, you know, it's testing, testing, but, but the challenge today, and, and I've got this right now uh, with the project is, you know, the, the rise of, of agile software development and, you know, these sprints that they do. Um, the, the, I think the fundamental challenge with that is, you know, when you when you're doing a project with with an agile software development methodology is you see you know if you're building a person you know you see a finger one week then you see a foot the next you might see a torso or a leg and you're testing it but then you don't know how it all fits together until the very end and that may not work at all so right. you know i think you know that that creates its own issues um but you know, in a word i think it's it's this patchwork quilt of having good contractual language, um, methodologies for testing the software, methodologies for remedying, you know, software that doesn't meet mutually agreed upon specifications. And that's something that your lawyer can help you with. And that is, is really critical these days. Yeah. You're, you're hitting on a really interesting and important nuance. Cause a lot of what we've talked about so far in this conversation has been more like on the software side, those are the software vendor side, but there's also the system integrator, the implementer, which may or is likely to be a, a separate third party, separate from the, the software vendor. And you could have a system integrator or an implementer that does everything they said they would do in the contract. Contractually, it's tight. Um, it They did A, B, and C. But the problem is the contractor, the statement of work says the wrong things. It, it's not, even though they met the terms of the contract, it, to your point, they agreed to do, they, they said they would take an agile approach and they took an agile approach. They said they would test each of the individual units of the, of the software. They did that, but they didn't do the integration testing or they didn't do these other things that were never in the contract. How do you, right. you know, how do you kind of bridge that gap between sort of the, call it the science of the contracts, which is, you know, everything that's listed in the contract was accounted for versus the art of it, which is, yeah, you did everything that was in the contract, but there's things that you should have been doing that in hindsight, you probably should have put in the contract as well. So how do you, how do you advise organizations on that? Well, it's really challenging, right? Because you're almost a broken record and you're saying, look, this needs to be in the contract. Everybody wants to get the deal signed quickly. There's, you know, incentives, monetary incentives, discounts to get that contract signed by the end of the year or by the end of the quarter. And so nobody wants to really focus too much on it. And they're thinking, well, you know, we know what we're doing and we're going to be good at it. And, you know, we don't need that level of granularity. When in reality, I think, you do, and it's nice to have, but if you don't have it in the contract, I mean, you've got to make, you know, 
sure that you have very seasoned and experienced uh, consultants on, on your side as the customer, right? You've got to have a project manager that really knows what they're doing and is going to be able to hold their feet to the fire. Because I think what, what you end up happening a lot of times is not only does the software get oversold, it's the services that get oversold, okay? So, you know, I've got a case now where it, it, what the, the customer is in a new industry vertical for this particular vendor. And this is not a perfect example because it's a vendor slash software provider at the same time. So it's all one, one throat to choke, so to speak. Um, you know, but they say, oh, we've got an incredible amount of industry experience. And we've done this many, many times before. Come to find out they've never done it in this particular scenario. Um, they're not assigning the right people. There's other projects that are more important, more lucrative. They're reassigning resources and consultants to these other projects instead of having them, you know, have a, have a consistent uh, tenure on the on the, the customer's project. So you know, that's what you're what you're up against on on the vendor side many times, right? You're not you're not getting the A team. You're getting the D team. Okay. You're getting people that don't not only don't understand your industry, they're new to the technology or the software or the product. And so you have to compensate and anticipate that that's going to be the case by having very good people on your side to the extent you can. Right. All right. We're here with Marcus Harris talking about why digital transformations fail and why transformation failures are increasing. We have a lot more to get to, but first we'll take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, Contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 94. We're here with Marcus Harris from Taft Law talking about why transformations fail and why digital transformation failures are on the rise. I know we've talked a lot about litigation, you know, how you get involved with litigation. When things go south, things end up being a failure. Someone's angry with the other party and they decide to file a lawsuit. That's where you often get involved. But you all, you also get involved earlier uh, in the process as well, don't you? Like, I mean, in other words, is it too early to hire someone like you to – um, especially if you don't have a super sophisticated internal general counsel or your general counsel is probably likely not used to dealing with these sorts of contracts and these sorts of nuances you're talking about. But is that something they, that people listening here today can do? Can they hire someone like you to take a look at the contracts yeah. and give them advice more from a legal and risk mitigation perspective? I, I think you need to get your attorneys involved way sooner than you actually think that you need to get them involved. There's an old saying in, in my industry, it's early legal advice is not expensive. Okay. Right. It's, it's late legal advice that is incredibly expensive. So if, if you get your attorney involved, he's looking at your RFI, your RFP, he's looking at your requirements for the software. Um, he's involved in the software selection process to some extent. That's, that should help you. Um, and, and, you know, 
it, it, it's going to have the overall effect of mitigating the likelihood of a failure down the road because they should be able to kind of see this from an objective standpoint and, and cut through the BS of, of the vendors. So, so yeah, I mean, I think, you know, if you can actually have your attorneys develop an RFI for you or an RFP, um, a lot of times people will go to independent consultants that specialize in software selection to get that done. And I think that's what services that you guys actually provide. Um, and I think that's yeah. a tremendous way to go because now you're, you're really laying it all out and, and, and uh, ensuring yourself to some extent uh, against a software failure. Yeah. And I think what you're saying is especially true. Again, if you don't have internal general counsel that has done this a million times and negotiated this a million times, seen all the pitfalls, seen the lawsuits, seen the failures, you need someone that's sort of been through that. And and there's something to be said for, you know, someone like you or I, where we, we end up seeing these failures up close and personal and, and you, we have to deconstruct or reconstruct the train wreck and understand the forensic evidence of why it happened, how it happened. There's so much you learn in that process that's far different in my opinion than just stubbing your toe along the way you know which we all do but yeah. seeing these massive failures there's so many lessons from from that i mean what are you know other than what you've already talked about are there other big lessons from some of the litigation you've been involved with or, or maybe some common most common themes that you see in terms of the root cause of why the projects failed i know you mentioned like unrealistic expectations for example but what, what other ones might you think of yeah well i mean to some extent it kind of goes goes hand in hand with unreasonable expectations, but I think it's, it's, um, you know, vendors overselling the software, right. Um, grossly underestimating the cost and time involved in connection with getting that software to go live, um, you know, going, going live, but, but not doing it in a reasoned and, and thought out way so that when you actually are live on the software, it's actually, um, you know, something that you can, can you can utilize. I think failure to, to, to test, the software sufficiently is another issue, which we kind of touched on. Um, yeah. Something that we didn't touch on is, you know, inadequate user training. I mean, you, you go live, or you're about to go live on the train on the software, and no one's trained in it. I mean, that's that's a problem too. You know, um, the failure to properly integrate that software with other tools that you're using. You know, having you know non uh, you know non chromatic solutions or post-it note solutions all over your your computer to, to try to get this thing to to integrate, you know that's that's not something that's that's uh, good clearly. And then I think you know trying to ensure against inadequate vendor resources. I mean, those are the big things that we see on a very consistent basis. You know, I think that was a list of seven or eight things um, off the top of my head that that are consistent problems, right? And I and I go back to this concept and it's something that I think I've heard you say before, I say it on a pretty regular basis. You know, if it's gonna fail, it's not really a failure of the technology, right? And the vendors, the standard vendor defenses is look, you know what, we've been around for 30 years, we've implemented our software in hundreds of thousands of, of, of locations around the world and we have hundreds of thousands of customers that use the software for, in the same industry for the same thing that you're using it for. So. Clearly, the software works, okay? And that's probably true, all right? Now, does it work in a way that's, that's, that's good for you? No, um, but you know, why is that? Well, it, it wasn't a failure of the technology, it was a failure of the process. <coughs> Excuse me, it was a failure of, of, of people, right? And so when you have a digital transformation failure, it's not so much a failure of technology, it's a failure of the people managing the process. And that's what I think you really want to account for when you're when you're 
uh, thinking about how to be successful when you're thinking about how to negotiate these contracts is to put those checkpoints in the contracts to manage the teams and make sure they're doing what they're supposed to be doing in an objective, measurable way. Right. Yeah, that's a that's, that's great advice. Um, what about you? You alluded to this a moment ago, Marcus. You you talked about how um, you know the vendors promising the A team doesn't deliver the A team. So Sam Graham over on LinkedIn asked the question of to what extent is part of the problem of getting the D team that the customer was too aggressive in price negotiation. So in other words, is it possible that you can actually be overly aggressive or focus too much on reducing cost, at least on paper? Um, and you know, what's, what are some of the ways to mitigate that? Yeah, I, I think that's, that's a good point. And I think we do see that happen. I mean, I, we've seen, you know, aggressively priced or unrealistically priced projects and all of a sudden, you know, the, the team that you were promised is reassigned to all these other more lucrative projects that the customer, the, the vendor has, and you are left with people that are not very good. Now, whether that was all illusory in the beginning, that's another debate, right? I mean, if you're telling me I've got, I'm going to get the A team, but what, how good is your consulting base as a, as a, as a, as a general rule? Um, but um, I think, I think that, that could be a symptom of that, but, you know, and so I think, you know, there's an old adage, you get what you pay for, right? And I think there is, there is truth to that, but as a customer, you don't know that. I mean, you're just trying to get, you know, a reasonable low price to get this thing accomplished. And if that price is too aggressive, then, you know, there, there's going to be a risk associated with that, I think. And we've seen that. And there's a, a case that you and I worked on a long time ago where, you know, the, the, the vendor had made some some commitments via pricing and timelines and 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 all sorts of other things that were just way unrealistic and because they were trying to meet those contractual obligations i think that was one of the contrib- contributors to the failure so yeah, yeah. you do see that sometimes. yeah absolutely what about um here's a really interesting question that i don't think you and i have ever touched on this in our discussions in the past or at least not that i recall but um this is from gasan on linkedin he says uh, zero code no code solutions that allow client to make a no code to make no code may disqualify the warranty. It's a trap. So maybe just broadening that a little bit. You've got vendors that obviously offer customization tools, configuration tools, and then now you know there's a big movement towards this whole uh, low code no code concept. Have have you seen cases where organizations, whether it's through low code no code or customization configuration or whatever, have you seen organizations that? Um, that are changing the software to fit their business needs, but somehow they invalidate the warranty or somehow they create more problems, at least from a legal perspective, uh, than, than they solve potentially? I, I haven't seen that specifically, though I've seen language like that in the contracts. It hasn't come up yet as a defense to a warranty claim. It's a matter of time and, it, and we will see it in the very near future. What we will see though, and it's a similar concept, is where the term of that warranty or the, 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 the reference, you know, the specifications, the documentation are all manipulated in a way so that the client can't actually take advantage of the warranty obligation in that contract. So for example, in a case that we have now, um, the warranty ran from uh, basically when it was put in a production environment. When the software was put into a production environment, the warranty started to run, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah the software failed all these tests in the sandbox and the vendor said, well, once you put it in a production environment, you're going to be able to test it and it's going to be able to work. So, so everything got accelerated before it should have been into a production environment and 
you know, by the time the client realized that it really wasn't working, the warranty period had already lapsed. So there's a lot of things that they will do to specifically invalidate your ability to, to make a warranty claim. And this whole no code, you know, code change kind of thing is certainly one of them. Um, and so you've got to be very careful about you know, what you're doing and making sure that's something an attorney should catch though. Okay. When they're negotiating that contract, they should be able to say, okay, well, how does this warranty mechanism really work? And if there's something inherent in my ability to utilize the software that invalidates the warranty, that's, that's a, that's a, an attorney problem that you have. In my view, someone didn't pay enough attention to the contract because that stuff should not ever happen. Okay. Now it's, I think it's harder to, 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 to contract, to contract around against, you know, blatant, um, uh, you know, just kind of jerry-rigging the system on the back end, um, you know, because everything's got a, a warranty term. If they're going to accelerate that term unreasonable, I mean, I don't, unreasonable, I'm not sure how you contract around that, but it, it certainly happens and it's certainly problematic. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's such a fascinating dynamic um, when you get into these litigation situations where a lot of times it starts out with implementing organization that hired the vendor says, um, you deliver software that doesn't work, it's broken, whatever, there's something wrong with your software. Vendor points the finger back and says, no, you customized the software, you changed it, you made it do something it shouldn't do. And you know, the response to that as well, it's because your software couldn't do what we needed it to do. Vendor says, well, it's because you refuse to change, your people refuse to change and just adapt to our best practices and our technology. So it ends up being just a lot of back and forth where, you know, quite honestly, you know, having bid on both sides, there's merit a lot of times to both sides of the argument. Um, but I guess, you know, where do you see in your experience, where do you see most of that blame lying or, or do you see a, a pattern where, it, yeah, it's typically, a, you know, 70, 30 split toward one party or the other. I mean, do you see that at all? Or is it pretty evenly split or what are your thoughts there? Well, we look, we take, we evaluate a lot of cases and we don't take as many as we evaluate, right? We, right. we take a sub. We usually will represent um, customers and not vendors. And, and early in my career, I was on the vendor side. I've switched to the customer side. And the cases that we don't take are where you know the, the contract doesn't provide any value. It doesn't make economic sense, or where it appears that the blame for the implementation, the tipping point from where you could not return to save that that project was really on the customer side and not on the vendor side. That's not a case that we would take on today. Okay. Right. If we're ordering a vendor, sure. But those are not good cases. And you see that, I mean, you know, customers, you know, go through, you know, changes in their business structure. They go through, um, uh, acquisitions, mergers, what, whatever it is. And, you know, those can take, those can you know, tend to take their eye off the ball. Not certainly not in every case. And, and not if it's a solid, it's a solid situation, it doesn't, but you know, you, there's a variety of issues, right? And um, the, there's an, always enough blame to go around in these kinds of cases. And the key is to evaluate them um, intelligently and figure out, you know, where the tipping point was. And in the cases that we take, the tipping point is almost always on the vendor side or the integrator side or some combination of, of the, you know, the, the, the people that were responsible for implementing the technology or developing it. Right. Now, what about issuing formal tenders? This is a follow-up again from, from Gassan. And uh, thank you for all the great questions, Gassan, uh, and everyone else that's, that's chiming in here. Uh, but would issuing formal tenders give the customer more control on contract terms and conditions? 
I'm not sure what he means by a formal tender. Do you you have an understanding of what what he's I, talking about? I think it means like an RFP process, like you like kind of like the government or public sector big organizations. A lot of times will put out their own criteria and specifications that vendors need to respond to and you know adhere to basically their terms. So they're sort of flipping it around a little bit, saying these are our terms. Tell us you know whether or not and how you might adhere to those terms. I think if you have a lot of leverage financially, that process can really help you. Okay. Um, and if you're in a, in an industry that is key and strategic for the vendor, I think that process can really help you. The challenge with that process is that when I was on the vendor side, you get an attorney to respond to the RFP. Okay. And the way I respond to an RFP is in a pretty non-committal way that gives me a lot of wiggle room down the road. So what's the value of it? I don't, I'm not really sure sometimes. Okay. Um, if you're dealing with a big software company and they're just responding to respond, um, I don't know how, how much it's really going to get you to where you need to be to evaluate that software in a reasoned way. I think what it does do, though, is it, it insulates you from a claim later that that vendor didn't understand what your business requirements were <clears throat> or that vendor doesn't understand what what was critical to your business and what the software had to do. You know, so they should have been able to allow for gaps in functionality and tell you that they were there. So that's a value right, right there. So. So, so I guess, you know, in a roundabout way to answer the question, yeah, I, I do think there's value in it. Okay. And certainly from an internal standpoint, from the customer, there's a tremendous amount of value because you're identifying then what your software needs are, what you want that software to do, what's critical, you know, what, what's a minimally viable product versus what is, you know, your dream product to have and where, where you're going to fall in that continuum and what's, what can be minimally acceptable to you. So I think the value is not so much in vendor control, but it's in understanding what your requirements and needs are and giving you the ability to determine you know, what's what's successful for you from, from both the software selection standpoint and then ultimately an implementation or integration standpoint. Right, right. And um, I have I have one more question I'm going to ask, but I, before I do that, I want to ask one more question that just came in from the audience. And this is from Clifford Martin, who is actually the head of our uh, third stage consulting Africa office based in South Africa, but he has a question here of our project failures, not often a matter of unreasonable expectations, which we did talk about that earlier about how unreasonable expectations are often the root cause of these sorts of challenges. Um, but then he goes on to say, you know, at the end of the day, the client executive is accountable for success, but he or she gets suckered into believing the system integrator marketing hype. Um, does the client therefore really have a case if, and I need to hide it to be able to read the rest. Uh, does the, the client therefore really have a case if they themselves have outsourced accountability for success? So I guess it's, it's sort of like that outsource mentality. If, if, and we see that as a, uh, oftentimes on the plaintiff side, the, the company that's implementing the, organi the, the implementing organization, they're suing a vendor, system integrator. Oftentimes what they'll say is, hey, we trusted you. You told us that you were the experts. You knew how to do this. You could get it done in X amount of time. I took, for lack of a better word, more of a hands-off approach. I delegated, outsourced to you. Mr. or Mrs. Vendor. So how do you, how does that blame end up lying then in that case? If I, you know, can I take a sort of a, my hands are clean approach by outsourcing it to an SI and, and have them hold the accountability or, you know, how much am I still responsible for? I, I, I think ultimately you're still responsible for it, right? I mean, I think you can, you can certainly do that, but it, it, in today's environment with the history of ERP failures, I think that is not a reasonable position to take, certainly in a lawsuit. Um, if you're going to say, okay, well, 
I'm just going to trust the vendor. I'm going to trust their representations. I'm going to trust that they've told me this is out of the box solution that can be implemented within three months at a cost of X. And it's the silver bullet that's going to solve all my technology needs. It, it, you know, you, it becomes very difficult to defend that position in court. Okay. So I think from, from a, for certain allegations in, in, in a lawsuit, you have to have reasonable reliance on their representations to, to even have a case. Okay. Mm -hmm. So if you were unreasonably relying on all, everything that they said and you outsourced everything, it's not going to do you any favors in the courtroom because you will have been deemed to be an unreasonable business person um, implementing, you know, a mission critical system and not even paying attention to it. So, you know, that's not going to go in a good way for you. So I think, you know, it's incumbent upon you, even when they are saying that, to to be skeptical, to look at them with a jaundiced eye, so to speak, and really test, verify, and make sure that they can live up to the obligations and that they are living up to the, the obligations and representations that they've made to you and the obligations they have in the contract. Right. Yeah. Makes total sense. So in other words, you can't just totally outsource responsibility because you're not the expert. I mean, I know that it's it's not reasonable to think that a CIO or a CFO, CEO, whoever, it's not reasonable to think that they're going to be an expert in these sorts of implementations, but they still have to have accountability and they still have to have a pretty close eye on what's happening and what's tracking and not just uh, push it off to the vendors. And the problem, I think, is, you know, system integrators, it's in the system integrator's best interest for you to outsource responsibility, at least in the short term, because they can staff up the project more, they can take on more of the heavy lifting, when in reality, organizations, in my opinion, don't take enough responsibility for building internal competencies along the way uh, to ensure that they, um, to ensure that they are, you know, accountable and own the project longer term. Yeah, I mean, point of fact, you have to own, own the project, right? I mean, if you've got the the system integrator owning the project, I mean, you've got the fox guarding, guarding you know, the, the chicken coop, and that's an untenable situation, right? I mean, they're just going to be printing money and, you know, taking time and you know, giving you all these, you know, pieces of customization and functionality that, that maybe you don't even need. That's just not the way to go. You, you, it, and it's, it's, Interestingly enough, most of the project managers that I have dealt with, um, you know, being in the industry, you, you develop friendships with people and, and, and you get to know them pretty well. A lot of the project managers that I know don't have technology backgrounds. It's business, they're, 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 you know, they're project managers. It's business process management, essentially. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And Clifford followed up with a comment that, uh, or sort of a question, but I'll turn it into a comment in the interest of time here. But Surely any litigation by a client should must be based on the premise that the client took reasonable steps to ensure executive oversight, for example, or in other words, an internal PMO. Um, and that's a role that we oftentimes will fill is will be an extension of our client's PMO. Client took reasonable steps to hire someone like through a stage that's neutral and agnostic that could help them manage the project and represent the client's best interest rather than, um, rather than the software vendors. And I think taking a step like that can help mitigate um, some of that risk. But I guess maybe just to broaden that question a little bit, um, which is a great comment, Clifford, thank you for that. And actually segues into my, my last question for you, uh, Marcus, which is what closing advice, you know, as we wrap up the conversation here, what closing advice would you give to an organization that's about to start a transformation in order to identify and mitigate some of these risks that we've talked about here today? Yeah, really, I think it's three things. One, be skeptical. Okay. Don't, don't believe 
everything that the vendors are telling you. Invest the time to put contracts in place that manage that process, okay? And then take the time to, 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 to manage the project during the life cycle of that integration or implementation, because if you're just gonna sit back, wash your hands of it, hope to get something that's going to work at the end of the day, you're setting yourself up for, for failure, right? I mean, I think, you know, just, just in some, I mean, you know, be active about this and be engaged in it. You've, you know, it's your project and you do have to take a level of ownership in, in, in that project to make it successful, because if you don't, it's not going to be a success. Yeah, that's a great, I mean, if, if I were to pick kind of one thing uh, to, to summarize, it's like, I think you just said it, uh, take ownership of your project and, you know, it's too tempting to trust to a fault, you know, software vendors and system integrators and trust that they know what they're doing and they know what's best for your business. But the reality is only you know what's best for your business and you've got to call audibles, you've got to pivot along the way, you, you have to. And if you're not something's wrong. I mean, you, you just know outside third party is going to get it right from the start and be totally on track and aligned with what your needs are. You have to roll up your sleeves and get your hands dirty in the process. And I think a lot of executives don't want to, or don't feel confident enough to. And that's where, you know, for the shameless plug here, that's where people like you and I can help is to give them that confidence and the advice that'll help them do that. Yeah. Roll up your sleeves and get dirty and get involved. Yeah, yeah absolutely. All right. Thanks very much, Marcus. Great conversation as always. It was great having you on the show again and appreciate the audience questions and comments as well as we're going through that conversation. In fact, we've got a few things to unpack from that conversation that Kyler and I will dive into, but first let's take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, Contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 94. You can find new episodes every Wednesday on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. Be sure to check us out there, or you can also find us on audio podcast platforms like Google, Apple, Spotify, Pandora, iHeartRadio, wherever you're listening to podcasts, you can check us out there and be sure to subscribe as well. And uh, so we just had Marcus on the show, Kyler, and uh, he's always interesting. He's a great guy. I really enjoy talking to him. Uh, what what was your what were some of your takeaways from this conversation we had here today? Yeah, absolutely. I'm a huge fan of Marcus. I think he um, has a really unique way of being able to clearly explain all of these different, very complex legal initiatives or subject matter. So we're always really grateful to have him on Transformation Ground Control or any of our other um, engagements. He um, has done a variety of keynotes for 
our um, digital stratosphere as well as Tafla sponsored many of those events. So he's a he's a great partner. Um, I think this this specific subject with Marcus is so important because the failures he's talking about are not just failures to utilize the technology to you know really maximize business value. These failures are failures that you know go to actual litigation and make sure and really go to what does that mean to go to that extreme polarizing point of how a digital transformation fails and when a digital transformation fails. And you forget how much of of the different red flags there are in the contracting phase with these vendors because you you go in assuming as a business they really want you to succeed. And I'm not at all saying that they don't, but that's not always incredibly prevalent. And you have to be vigilant in that um, overall contracting process. Uh, so I, I think that we, if I could do, you know, a, a PSA campaign, that would be one of the main ones of understanding software contracts and understanding where like that hyperlink approach that he talks about is really a huge risk to the overall business. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that sense of urgency that he talked about as far as end of quarter, end of month, end of week, end of day, whatever, you know, there's always an excuse of why you need to sign now and you better get going now or else, you know, you're going to lose your resources. You're going to lose the discount we're offering you now. It's only good through the end of this month. You always get that refrain and it, and it, it just adds it as further fuel, further as fuel to the fire of this already inflated artificial sense of urgency that, oh, shoot, we need to change right now. And it just, uh, it's not healthy. I mean, it's, it's really uh, destructive in the industry right now, I, I think. I think we're in a pretty, I, I hate to say it, and I know many will disagree with me, but I think we're in a very dark space of the digital transformation industry, despite all the great technologies and advancements that, have, that are happening out there. I think the software vendors and their system integration partners are, are undermining, completely undermining that value by doing what they're doing, which is forcing companies to get off the old systems, get on to the new digital technologies. And I'm all for digital transformation. Obviously, it's all I've ever done. But it, it, it you know, there's a there's a, a pace at which organizations should go, and they need to go at a pace that they're comfortable with and that makes sense to them. And too early in the process, the whole the whole tempo gets hijacked by software vendors and system integrators, and it's it's like a freight train that's out of control. Uh, if you don't control it. So I think, you know, one of the first things organizations can and should do is just get a handle on the project and just take the reins and be in control of the project from the start. And don't let your software vendor system integrators tell you when you're going to migrate, how you're going to migrate. You can take their input, of course, you want to, you want to collaborate, but you don't need to totally outsource and follow their lead uh, along the way, because they've got totally different self-interest than, than you do. Yeah, and, and I would argue it's almost gone from a sense of urgency to a complete desperation and leveraging um, different businesses that, that don't often activate digital strategies to this extent is really that leverage that vendors have over them in kind of painting themselves as the expert, quote unquote. And that's the one thing that third stage we talk about because it's a passion of ours, just the lack of integrity in leading a business down a pathway that might not be what's best for them, which is why we're in the space that we're in. But I think, um, you know, Marcus makes such an excellent point and, you know, you guys both do on just the overall understanding of what that means. So when you're being pushed to upgrade, quote unquote, which we know it's not an upgrade, it's completely new implementation when it comes to 
going to a cloud resource or when you are in a business right now that might be affected by the COVID-19 lingering pandemic, inflation, those types of different things, and you really have to alter your business model, being intentional and mindful and engaging with partners that their only goal is to make sure that you are successful. Um, and that that brings me to kind of a, my next question, um, which we, we touched on a little bit, but how do you create that collaborative accountability with your vendors in the contracting or in the statement of work to ensure that not only are they accountable for the success of the implementation, but they're also accountable for it actually leveraging that knowledge transfer, that breakage that we often see with our clients of here you have all of this, but now nobody understands how to work it. Thus, we we experience a lot of resistance and lagging user adoption. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and I, by the way, before I forget, I really, I like your use of the word desperation. I think that's a great way to describe what's happening in the industry. It's like desperation and panic are the two words that, uh, additional words that come to mind. And I think those are good ones. But, but I think the, um, you know, I think the first thing that, to create that sense of collaboration and accountability. First things organizations need to do, if you're the implementing organization, is you need to really separate what the system integrator and software vendors responsibilities are, because they're going to build technology and they're going to do it a certain way. But your job is to figure out how do I integrate that technology into the business? And they can talk all they want about, yeah, well, we do train the trainer. We work with your users to figure out what the requirements are and all that stuff. That's great. It helps. It gets you started on the on the path towards a technical implementation. But your job then is to add other work streams to your plan, which are the things that are going to make the project successful or the ones that are going to make it fail. And so on one hand, you want to say, well, it's more incumbent on us as the implementing organization that now needs to figure out how we're going to augment what this software vendor and system integrator are doing to address change management, to address data migration, the architecture and integration the overall program management, all that stuff is stuff that wraps around or should wrap around the, the technical implementer. But the problem is organizations start off on the wrong foot by saying, well, they're the technical implementer. They're the expert. I'm going to let them kind of take the reins here and let them run with it. And they're going to deliver a technical implementation. And like Marcus and I discussed in the, in the interview, um, there's a difference between a technical implementation and a business implementation. So I think that's the first thing is you have to identify what the role is and how that role integrates to other work streams. And you also kind of need to, I hate to say it, but you kind of have to put them in their place and say, you're, you're the lead of this work stream, but you're not the lead of this project. This project is a broader transformation that extends well beyond you and your technology. And here are the things we're going to do. This is how we're going to manage it. And you use their inputs, of course, you collaborate with them, but you're really setting the tone. And if you have a vendor or, so or a system integrator that doesn't like that, then you have to say, well, why don't you like that? It's my business. I'm trying to, I'm trying to drive a business transformation here. You're delivering part of that with your technology. So why would you have a problem with me taking the reins here? And that to me is a telling sign when a system integrator doesn't like a, a client or an, a, an organization uh, taking control. And that's, that's where we help a lot of our clients too, is to set up a PMO that can manage these multiple work streams. We help them establish the change management work stream, the process improvement, the data migration, integration, architecture, all that stuff. Absolutely. Um, I think those are all such important tips. And I'd love for our audience right now to drop in the comments wherever you're watching some tactics that you've had to hold your vendor partners accountable. Um, and we can kind of aggregate those and, and share those out in social media because it, it really is so important. Um, and to... Um, your and Marcus point, 
engage an expert in the contracting phase. There, nobody knows how to do everything. Even very savvy, smart internal counsel or general counsel may not have the expertise to kind of read between the lines in those areas in which you want to make sure that you are mitigating any risk when it comes to being contractually obligated. Um, Eric and I recently had a client visit our office that talked about they were trying to end their relationship with their system integrator just because it was becoming very toxic. They weren't working well together but they couldn't because the system integrator built them custom integrations and the system integrator claims that they owned those integrations. And that's one of those things that you might not even have thought that would be in the process. Like, of course you don't own those integrations. You built them on our behalf, but contractually, because they didn't have that lens of understanding, they had to come to someone like third stage, engage us and say, you know, I need help into mitigate this problem and and that is an expensive problem because now you're talking about who owns intellectual property and completely blowing up budget and timelines around your implementation yeah well well said and i'd love to hear from the audience and and we do read all the comments so i'd love to i'll look, I'll look forward to hearing the comment or the audience's feedback on what they think you know the biggest keys to success are or the keys to avoiding failure i'm really curious to hear that as well based on you know, what we've talked about, and maybe there's other ideas that the audience has here as well. So definitely good stuff. Well, well, thanks for that, that debrief there. And uh, hopefully that gets the audience and people that are about to embark on a digital transformation, hopefully that gets you set up or thinking about the ways that you can be managing for success, managing to your own tempo and managing to your own business needs as well. And I think that's the, probably the biggest takeaway is it's your project, do what you need to do to, to make sure it's successful. So uh, thanks again to Marcus for being on the show as well. It's great to have him back again. And uh, we're going to shift gears a bit. And for those of you that are consultants or you're interested in consulting, or perhaps you work with consultants and you want to learn more about the field of consulting, we're going to have a clip on next after a quick break. We're going to have a clip of uh, some college students talking about the future of digital transformation. So it's a panel discussion with with myself and them. And, and Kyler, you're there too, of course, uh, talking about the future of digital transformation consulting. And uh, they've got some great questions for me in that discussion. So we wanted to play you that clip um, because I know many of you listening are consultants or interested in consulting. So we'll play that for you. Uh, but first, we'll take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 94. This is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham, your co-hosts on the show. As always, you can find new episodes every Wednesday 
be sure to check us out on social media too. Wherever you're on social media, be sure to look for Third Stage, look for Kyler, look for myself. You can find us all there. And next on the show, we're going to play you a clip that of an interview that or a panel discussion, Kyler, that you and I had a few weeks ago with some college students from Colorado State University, which is a university that's close to the Third Stage Global Headquarters here in the United States. And the students uh, had some great questions about the future of digital transformation consulting, what it takes to get into consulting or to be a good consultant. Um, so it was a really uh, interesting conversation. And quite frankly, it's uh, it's not a conversation I have often. So in some ways, I was very nervous to have this conversation because I'm not used to these sorts of questions. I'm used to C-level people asking me questions about digital transformation, not you know what it takes to be a consultant or whatever. But, it, but it's fun to do. I like, I like doing it and I enjoyed the conversation. So we thought we would play it for you. Just to provide some context and, and uh, just some lessons or tips on how to enter the world of consulting, uh, what the future looks like, how to work with consultants. If you're not a consultant or interested in consulting, you may want wonder what's it like to work with consultants. So we'll, we'll go through all of that here uh, in this clip. So let's roll the clip with Kyler and I chatting with the college students about the future of digital transformation consulting. So we're here at the third stage headquarters in Denver, Colorado, meeting with a cohort from Colorado State University. We have Dr. Serrano, we have Colin, we have Marissa and Jessica, all from Colorado State. And we thought we'd give them the opportunity to really grill me and ask me a bunch of questions about consulting in general and about technology, career stuff, and really just anything they wanna ask. So we're gonna turn it over to them to ask whatever questions they wanna ask. So who wants to start? So what would be like your one piece of advice that you would like give to any, like, any student that like, came in, if you were trying to inspire them or they asked you, like, what would you say? If I was trying to inspire them? Yeah. Um, I would say, well, first of all, do what you love. I know that's a cliche and everyone says it, and your parents probably told you that <laughs> at a young age, so it's probably not anything new. But I'd say, you know, be sure you're, you're doing what you love or pursuing what you love, but also to be open to unexpected detours and pivots in that journey, because I honestly could have never, I would have never laid this out as the, is a trajectory I would have been on, but I, I love it. So I'm glad I was open to it, which I was not early on. I was, I heavily, ironically, I heavily resisted the technology and ERP route. I wanted nothing to do with it. And now here I am embracing it and have a whole company uh, committed to it. So I think you just have to be open and, and also maybe, you know, try to figure out how you can use some of your transferable skills that maybe you thought you were going to use in one way. Maybe there's another way that's more viable or you might like even more. Um, that would be another just high-level piece of career advice. You guys were talking before we started filming, you guys were talking about um, journalism at Colorado State University. And I didn't tell you this, but I, I was actually this close to going to Colorado State University as a journalism major. And I was originally gonna be a journalism major because I really wanted to do, because I like to write and um, I thought I could be a writer or a news anchor or whatever. Um, but I realized that probably wasn't the best use of my skills and I like business a lot too. And turns out I like technology a lot. So I sort of applied that love of journalism to what I do now in consulting. So that would be, I don't know if that's inspiring necessarily, but I think having, <laughs> having some clarity and, but also being open to just strange directions your career might go. You know, I think it's, I was discouraged at times and I, in hindsight, I should have just embraced it earlier and more often. So. That'd be the key advice I'd, I'd leave you with. Thank you. Sure. What do you think is your biggest challenge working with clients? I have to be careful because many of our clients may watch this <laughs> video. <laughs> um, no, I'd say with clients, the biggest challenge is, and I don't 
think this is a bad thing, it's just a, it's a challenging skill set to apply, is to empathize with what they're going through. Because a lot of times, you know, clients can get crazy sometimes. They, they have a lot of pressure they're under. And when they're responsible for a large scale transformation, there's a lot of pressure on them individually and it creates some unintentional behavior that could get directed at a consultant. You know, you're, you're a good scapegoat if you're an outsider or if you're an outside advisor. So I think you just have to recognize that you have to go in assuming that most clients are gonna be difficult, not because they're bad people, because they're under a lot of pressure and they expect a lot from you. And so I always encourage people to try and figure out why are they stressed out? Like maybe it's because the person that was in their role before them got fired for failing in the same exact project, which it happens. And so you recognize, okay, that person just stressed out because that person before them just got fired. They came in to clean up the mess and they hire us to help. They're under a lot of pressure. So let's empathize with them, listen to them, be almost like a, a therapist to them at times. And um, rather than fighting it or complaining that they're terrible people or they're annoying or whatever, you just sort of have to accept that that's where they are in their, their lives. So I think that's probably the hardest part is just empathizing and understanding where, where clients are coming from. Okay, so following up on that, you talked a, you hit a lot on just like being a, per, a good person, pretty much. And that was like <laughs> the gist of it, being a good person. So I noticed that you're like the organization here is not a, isn't a lot of people. So how do you choose the people that you work with? Yeah, so we've got a handful of people in the office today on a Friday is um, usually pretty light uh, to begin with. We've got about fifty people, so we're not a huge. Okay. You're right, we're not a huge company, but a lot of them are dispersed to outside of outside of Denver. Um, but as far as the kind of people we hire, um, you know, certainly the usual stuff is important. Like, do they know what they're doing and do they have the right technical competency? But that's not as important as more of the interpersonal and cultural fit. So I'll, I'll take a, uh, back to, are you a good person? I'll take a person with high integrity. That's a good cultural fit, but isn't quite as talented maybe on the technical or the on the on paper side of things, I'll take that person any day over the smarter person that knows more, but isn't as good of a fit. So um, that was really hard for me to figure out. It took me a long time to figure that piece out. As simple as it sounds, I always wanted to hire the smartest person or the person that you know graduated highest in their class or had the most number of years of experience or whatever. And that stuff is overrated, unfortunately, because <laughs> I pride myself. You know, when I came up in school, I wanted to have the best grades and be as smart as I could, which I'm glad I did, but it took me a while to realize that's not the most important thing. I guess, like, how, how have you been able to kind of, like, I guess you have more life experience in that than I do. How do you choose, how do you know that somebody is, like, how do you decide that someone's a good cultural fit? How do you decide that someone has, like, I guess, high integrity in just, like, an interview? Like, how do you just interview this person and be like, oh, I, I want them to work with us? Well, it's hard. It's hard. I, we have not mastered it. Um, I don't think we'll ever be at 100% success rate. You're always going to have, there's a certain amount of risk anytime you hire someone that you've never worked with before. Um, but I'd say that we try to ask more behavioral interviews, like tell me about a time that you were, um, you struggled in your career or that you failed in a project or, you know, kind of try to talk through some adversary or some moments of adversity and how they overcame them, because that usually tells you what kind of person it is and how they dealt with it. If I hear someone blaming a lot of other people for why they failed, like, yeah, this one project failed, but it wasn't my fault, it was everyone else's fault, that's not gonna be a good cultural fit and it's right. not the kind of person we'd wanna hire. 
Um, but if they take ownership and say, yeah, here are the things I learned, here are the things I screwed up, and these are the things I know not to do in the future, I love that. Because I'll say, okay, well, that person's imperfect, they've made mistakes, but they probably have learned a lot of things that the first example would never understand. So there's a lot of behavioral stuff that we ask. Um, and then when I interview too, I always think of being a consulting, we travel a lot. So you end up in airports and hotel lobbies and stuff with people a lot, you know, outside the office. And so I always think if I ever get stranded in an airport, at a bar, restaurant, or wherever, could I see myself just having a conversation and enjoying my time with this person? And it sounds superficial and it sounds irrelevant to work, but it, it kind of works. Like if you, if you right. stick with that and you have a bunch of people that like working together, as long as you're not becoming too um, homogeneous in the type of people you hire, I don't want to hire a bunch of people like me because right. that'd be a nightmare for probably <laughs> just about everyone <laughs> if, yeah. if I'd hired a bunch of people like me or clones. So you've got to like be open to diversity, but also in a co diversity in a cohesive way where we share the same common values and that sort of thing. Right. I think my biggest thing, like my biggest growing pain right now is like realizing that like no matter how like how hard work or a good, I guess, kind of good person somebody is, like you don't get along with everybody, like you're not a good fit for everybody. Like you have people that are great people and they're just like, I don't know why I don't mesh with this person. And I think that's a been a big, like big thing to try and figure out is how to like just kind of navigate that. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a common issue. and. Any organization, I think any um, grouping, you know, you can even look at households, right? Yeah. And, and sure. there's issues sometimes, some conflicts. And, um, so I imagine that's a big part of what you all see in, you know, challenges and transformation is is that their, you know, organizations are a mixed bag mm -hmm. of lots of different people who bring lots of different perspectives, but also hang-ups and all sorts of other things. But yeah, it, it, I don't know that there's a, there's no manual ever on how to navigate that. There's no like clear-cut answer either. I don't think that anyone could give other than, you know, like the stuff you're saying, you know, try to be a good listener and um, empathetic and that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. Have grace for yourself, right? You know, that's a part of growing up. That's just right. a part of, of yeah. becoming an, an older, mature human being. So um, you'll figure that out when it comes to that, but also not taking it so seriously. This is just a job. This is just, you know, a, a career. So you can still have your own personal values and maybe not go, you know, out all night with the person next to you, but understanding that there's still a level of communication that needs to be respected. So, and I think that, again, just comes with experience. Yeah. Seems like this would be a good career to go into um, to learn the skills you need to be in, like, a good marriage. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We talk about that all the time. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we do. To have good relationships, period. Yeah. Yeah, because it, it, you do have to, that part about clients, so you, we can choose who we work with on our team at third stage but we can't choose the types of people that our clients hire. And you're just gonna have situations where, you know, we've had clients where most of the people on their team we would never hire. Not because we don't like them, it just, it just doesn't fit our culture. But yet we have to be able to get along with them and communicate with them and help them through their process. And it's not up to us to judge whether they're right or wrong or whether their culture's right for them, it's just different than ours. And so if you can navigate that and become 
sort of a chameleon. Like as a consultant, a good consultant, you have to be a chameleon and you have to fit into all these weird different cultures that you've never seen before, different industries. And so um, just being able to drink from the fire hose, learn quickly, be a chameleon, that's a super helpful skill set in any career you might do after consulting. And consulting for a lot of people is a starting point. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they do consulting for a few years and then they go into industry doing other stuff. And if you do decide to go and do other stuff, it's going to help you tremendously there. And of course, if you stay in consulting, it, it's going to help you there or in this industry as well. Yeah, it's like the appetizer sampler at Chili's, right? So I know, right? So you order everything on the menu and you can try everything because you're going in different industries, you're going with different systems, you're going with different projects, um, that type of thing. And if you find, I'm super passionate about the automotive industry, you can move into, maybe you work with a specific automotive uh, or automotive application, those types of things. So consulting, I think if I had to go back and redo it and i started in an agency background so similar uh i wouldn't have it any other way because that's how i essentially learned what i like to do and what i didn't like to do so i think it's a, a great opportunity um to do that and usually also the consultants that are on the leadership side are such a wealth of knowledge especially if you're at an independent um consulting firm that there, it's a great mentorship opportunity to go into different areas in the overall information technology business. They have a massive network. So it's always a, a benefit. Yeah. And I think one of the challenges or one of the problems with the consulting industry in general is that it reminds me a lot of the, like the healthcare industry in, in Western medicine in that you have a bunch of really smart people that are focused on one area, one specialty, and they're so smart that they don't, they can't see outside that discipline. So just like in medicine, if you go, something's wrong with you, you tell them what the symptoms are, they're gonna come in with their blinders of what they know and what they specialize in, not necessarily diagnosing the entire holistic problem. And so I think that's a problem in consulting too, because so many consultants come in with their biases and their preconceived areas of specialty that they assume is gonna be applicable to every client they deal with. And so to Kyler's point, us being independent technology agnostic, I think helps us a lot because we can look outside the realms of one specific technology and trying to figure out what the what the right solution is, whether it's technology related or maybe it's not. Maybe it's more of a process or a people issue or a strategy issue or all of the above. Okay, we're having a conversation here or playing you a clip of a conversation with some college students talking about the future of digital transformation consulting. We've got a lot more conversation to go, but first we'll take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, Contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 94. Kyler and I are here uh, playing a clip of some college students in a panel discussion about the future of digital transformation consulting. Let's jump back to it. 
I say, when you said technology, like, what do we see in the future? Like, what do we see coming next? What would you like to see for your company? Like, what would be something that you think could be automated or made through technology to be made easier or better even? It's a great question. We're in the process of uh, taking a dose of our own medicine and helping ourselves figure out what our technology landscape is because we've grown so fast so quickly that we've, we're starting to outgrow our, our um, accounting and invoicing and finance systems. Our resource management system is is becoming capped. I mean, we're we're about to break that, you know, the, the way we use it now, and so we're looking now at ways that we can just automate that and, and just bring in more advanced technologies, you know, beyond QuickBooks and beyond a super advanced Excel spreadsheet that we use to manage all of our resources now. Mm-hmm. So um, it's interesting to look in the mirror and say, this is what we're advising all of our clients on, and now we need to do this for ourselves and sort of uh, take our own medicine, if you will. What resources do you use to keep up with those emerging technologies and new things coming to the market? Yeah, so a lot of it is certainly talking to a lot of people in the industry and just getting different perspectives. Um, You know, I think a a lot of us just read a lot and are constantly trying to push our boundaries of our understanding. Um, But we also have technology. One area where we do have good, I think, more advanced technology than our competitors is on on the client facing side. I think we have really good technologies. I think we're more advanced there. Our back office stuff is what I was answering with you is like more our back office systems could use some help. Um, but on the client facing side, we have technology that that quantifies different technologies and what the strengths and weaknesses are against there's I think there's 30,000 or more different business needs or requirements. And then there's quantitative rankings of all the different systems and technologies in the marketplace that can handle those requirements. So you can kind of get a feel for what technology or technologies can handle certain functional needs or certain uh, specific areas or need business needs or whatever. So that's, that's one thing that, that those are just a few things we used for resources there. Who does the rankings? Um, it's an independent third party analyst firm. So we license the technology and we have an exclusive license in the independent consulting space to use that technology as part of our consulting delivery. So we don't even have to manage it. It's, it's, done and handled separately by another independent, it's, it's an analyst firm, and they are constantly staying on top of all the technologies, the new releases and all that stuff. So we don't have to, because it's just, it's hard for, with only 50 people, you know, there's only so much those 50 people know, even if you could combine all of our brains into one, it's still limited in some ways. So having that technology is, is a big help. Mm-hmm. Having technology to keep up with technology. Yep. Exactly, yep. There we are. That's, that's the world we're in now. <laughs> What are the major roles and responsibilities um, of people on your team at third stage? Well, in general, um, it varies project to project, but in general, the services we provide are far reaching from beginning with the early stages of a sort of a digital strategy and helping a client an organization figure out what their digital roadmap is going to be at a high level. And then within that is also going deeper into specific technologies that might best help them achieve that roadmap. And so digital strategy, software selection is a big part of what we do. That's how you know, probably most of our clients begin with us is in that digital strategy and, and software selection phase. And then once they've done that, then they get into planning for the implementation and then actually executing the implementation. And we help them through that entire, that entire process. So the ways we help in the actual implementation would be the implementation planning piece, which is the 
sort of the PMO, helping them set up a program management organization, either internally or helping stand one up that we help support. Um, we also help on the change management front, you know, in implementation planning and throughout the implementation, we'll help just manage the organizational change, the uh, employee adoption of, of new technology and processes. Um, we'll also do process reengineering and business process management to help define what the new futures state processes are going to be and how it's going to impact their organization and impact their people. Um, and then we're starting to do more and more with, with uh, more on the technical side, like on the architecture, integration, and data migration side. So the things that are basically all the stuff I've mentioned, all the things we do are things that are technology agnostic. Like we can do those things without specializing in any one system or any one technology. And we can plug and play different technical solutions into that offering to, to help clients have a complete transformation. So that architecture, data migration, um, and integration, system integration piece is becoming more and more prevalent in our, in our offering as well. So those are the major things. And then the other piece is sort of off on the side, which is the expert witness stuff, which is about uh, 15 or 20% of our revenue. So it's not, it's not huge, but it's not immaterial either. So 15 to 20% of our revenue is just supporting lawsuits and attorneys who need an expert opinion uh, via reports and testimony and other stuff to help them fight each other and blame each other on whose fault it is that a, that a project failed. So that's, a, that's becoming a, a bigger part of our business too. So um, can I follow up on that and ask about that? Sure. Is that okay, Jess? Yeah. Okay. Um, so uh, I, I'm sorry, I keep bringing up these lawsuits. I'm all like super fast. Oh, no, they, they the are fast. I, I was, until you mentioned it as a guest speaker, I, it's something that I really made, wasn't even on my radar. Um, so in your experience, because you've been consulting for a long time and working with ERP a long time, um, how approximately ballpark, how many... Um, different cases have you consulted on and um, if you had to extract some themes of you know what you see most frequently what would what would you say sure so um, our team and I have been involved in about 40 probably around 40 cases over the years now mm -hmm. and you know we have a team of people it's not just me there's a team of people to help me analyze and review all the documentation that Kyler was talking about earlier, all the documentation like emails and project plans and project charters, project status reports. You review everything that ever got created for that project. And the whole idea is you put together sort of a forensic analysis of what happened. Like, how did this happen? Where did the, where did the failure start? Um, what was the cause of it? And what should or shouldn't have either the um, implementing organization and or the software vendor or the technical implementer, what should they have done? What should they have done and what did they actually do? And what's the difference between the two? And then attorneys then take that and they use it, you know, they cherry pick what they want out of that to say, okay, see, it must be the other side's fault because our expert says, you know, A, B, and C. Um, so that's sort of the gist of what we do, but the, the general themes or the common recurring patterns we see um, in multiple cases, um, first and foremost, uh, lack of focus on change management is a big one. So not spending enough time addressing the people side of the change. Um, they could have a perfectly designed solution and meets all of their needs, all their requirements, but the people were resisting it. Not because, again, not because they're bad people, not because there's a, there's a negative culture necessarily, although that could be part of it. Um, but usually it's just because they don't understand it. No one's focused, they focus so much on the technology, they didn't focus enough on the people and helping them come along for the journey. The technology is always gonna be easier to change 
and to, get, and to stand up than to get the entire organization to transform. And organizations don't understand that. And then you have software vendors and other consultants just kind of fueling that misbelief that it's all about the technology. It's super easy because it's cloud. We've got BI, we've got AI, we've got data analytics. It's going to be great. Everyone's going to love it. And they sell organizations on this vision without fully understanding what the risks are and what other things matter well beyond the technology. So that change management is number one. Um, other common symptoms or, or root causes of symptoms are the company itself is not aligned they, on what they want and what they're trying to be when they grow up. So they're trying to hit a moving target. So they're trying to put in technology at the same time they're trying to figure out what they want to be when they grow up. And then it ends up being a disappointment because they haven't they haven't nailed that down first and then figure out the mission, vision kind of, you know, for the company kind of. Yeah. And also just generally, what are their objectives even, you know, a layer below that? Like, are you, for example, like, is, are you trying to, as an organization, are you, you say you want to scale and you want to grow. Does that mean you want to standardize your business processes and have common business processes? Do you want to have maximum flexibility? So different business units and geographies have, can be entrepreneurial. And those are two extremes, but those are two different models. And sometimes organizations haven't even figured that out. So then you come in with technology and it doesn't, it, you're just guessing as, as to what, what the needs are. So that lack of uh, strategic alignment is important. And then kind of a sub point within that is even if the organization itself has a clarity of vision and strategy and objectives, people within the organization get misaligned on what they think this project means to support that. And if they're not aligned, then again, it's a moving target because now decisions get muddied and it takes longer to get decisions. People are fighting over what's right and wrong and, and it slows the project down and it, it diminishes business value not you know focusing too much on technical capabilities and less and not enough time on like how can we optimize our business processes to get business value those are two different things too sometimes there's overlap sometimes the technology will deliver business value just by its very nature but most the time you have to really focus on what is it we're trying like where's the where are the pockets of value that we could get and then let's figure out and attack those areas rather than just trying to put in technology across the whole the whole company um Unrealistic expectations is, is another one. That's probably the last major one that's probably the most common is company goes to implement a solution. They think it's going to take 18 months, but 18 months was never realistic. It was never going to happen in 18 months. It was always going to take 36 months or whatever. Um, but software vendor and system integrator convinced them you can do it in 18 months. And theoretically, you could have done it in 18 months if all you had to worry about was the technology. But you don't just worry about the technology. You worry about the organization and the operations when you factor that in, it takes you longer. So when you have unrealistic expectations, then you end up making a bunch of really bad decisions that further perpetuate the problem. Like you cut change management or you, you cut a couple rounds of testing or training or whatever stuff that you need to have, you cut it out because you don't have time because you never were going to get it done in 18 months. And now you're trying to force fit an entire transformation into less time. So those are probably the, the biggest ones I can think of. I think it's really cool that you all do that because I imagine that it's always a learning experience and it helps inform, mm -hmm. you know, like what not to do and stuff, you know, sure. over time you can kind of stay up to speed on a lot of what's going on. And that's the real value of why we do it because it's like a constant learning exercise for us. I mean, it, even though it's 15 to 20% of our revenue, that's significant, but it's more about like the, the lessons learned and just the, mm -hmm. the ability to be able to see the extreme failures, you learn so much from those and you know, you're constantly learning to your point and then you 
then the question is how do we apply that up front to where a new client comes in, we're starting on day one, how can we avoid those same things that we just opined on in a, in a lawsuit? Thanks for, thanks for the great questions. It was, it was a good discussion and it's always a good reminder for me too, like to remember, like, wait, why did I get into consulting? And <laughs> what is it I like about it? What, what don't I like about it? Yeah. So that's, that's all, those are good. It's good to re go back and revisit that stuff. So thank you. Thank you for um, meeting with students and I mean, carving out like two hours of your day for, for students and helping them. All right, good stuff. Well, that's a clip from Colorado State University students talking with Kyler and I about the future of digital transformation consulting. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll debrief and chat about some of the themes in the conversation. But first, we'll take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling, the CEO of Third Stage Consulting. And we recently hosted our Digital Stratosphere 2022 virtual event. It's three days of packed content related to digital transformation best practices, about 16 or 18 different workshops and different speakers that are presenting on different topics, everything you need to know about transformation. The, the bad news is you, if you miss that event, the event's over. The, the live event already happened. But the good news, if you've missed it, or even if you did attend it and you want to see replays or you want to catch the sessions you missed, you can do that now by going to stratosphere2022.com. Go to stratosphere2022.com, register. All you have to do is put in your, your name and email address, uh, just a few fields. You get immediate access to all the recordings, and the recordings cover everything from digital strategy, um, software selection, organizational change, process improvement, architecture, data migration, cloud, trends in the industry, um, how to avoid failure, some of the legal aspects to think about, contractual aspects to think about as it relates to your transformation. All that is stuff that you'll get by registering for Stratosphere 2022 replay. And again, go to stratosphere2022.com and you can listen to all the replays of all the workshops that you might have missed at the event. So hope you check it out and uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 94. And Kyler, we just had this uh, clip we played of the college students chatting with us about the future of digital transformation consulting. What were your thoughts and takeaways from that conversation? Yeah, well, I think it it's one, um, you know, good props to their professors that actually bring them out into the real world to kind of get an idea of what does it mean to have a career in technology. And I think that that's so important and often overlooked in higher education. Um, and then secondly, I think within that conversation, the students just made me so excited for the, you know, the next generation of enterprise technology specialists because they, you know, were so in tuned with the human side of what technology means. And a lot of times when we take specifically IT-based students out of that environment, sometimes the human piece has to be taught and trained within their their overall understanding or education. So I, I thought that was excellent that they really understood the importance of things like organizational change, the human side of artificial intelligence, HR, those different initiatives um, too. I think yeah, I, absolutely. Yeah, I'm so curious, Eric, when it comes to why do you think young people don't often get as involved in consulting, especially independent technology consulting? Well, that's a good question, actually. I've never thought, thought about that. Well, I'd say, first of all, it's probably because there's not a lot of independent consulting firms out there. So you, you definitely have more options if you go work for one of the incumbents, you know, one of the 
the big software vendors and or one of their implementation partners. There's just more of them. You know, many of these big consulting firms like Accenture and Deloitte, you know, they scale their companies by hiring just thousands or tens of thousands of college graduates. So it, it, there's just more opportunity, I, I suppose, with those really big incumbents. Um, but the other part of it is I think consulting can be intimidating in some ways because it's so broad. I mean, there's so many different nooks and crannies of consulting. There's so many areas of specialization. And on one hand, you want to have a view of the big picture and you want to understand how an entire transformation works. But on the other hand, to start out, you kind of need some sort of specialization to start out and then you can sort of broaden your skill sets from there. So I think that can be overwhelming uh, to a lot of people and consulting is hard. You know, it's just a, I think it's a challenging industry because you work a lot of hours, you're in pretty intense, high pressure situations. A lot of times you have clients that are under a lot of pressure themselves and they take it out on you because you're, you're the outside expert and you're being paid well to, to help them through it. And so that you end up bearing the brunt of some of their frustration at times. So there's a lot of, I don't want to say it's all rainbows and unicorns because it's, it's not, there's a lot of difficulty to it. And I think for a lot of people, that's just too much. And, and the other thing is travel. You know, a lot of people just don't want to travel as much as, as consultants do. Absolutely. Um, I thought it was so interesting, the dynamics of these were all students from a specific uh, major or, or graduate students from um, the MES uh, overall computer science side of, of CSU, uh, Colorado State University. And, and I think it's just the overall diversity of what they were doing. We had one student who was focused in mathematics. We had one that was in um, marketing analytics and one that was in HR. So it seems like the computer science, I don't have a computer science major, but it seems like that's really diversifying outside of just like software engineering or um, computer science core majors. Yeah. Yeah. I think that bodes well for the future of consulting is to have those diverse backgrounds and different perspectives. I think that's, that's super important because you think about the echo chamber that is the digital transformation consulting space a lot, you know, you end up with a bunch of people that are, have been around drinking the same Kool-Aid, reinforcing the Kool-Aid with each other for years and years and years. It always helps to bring in, you know, some fresh blood and fresh perspectives as well. Absolutely. Well, if anyone is interested in consulting for third stage, what's the best way for them to kind of get in touch with us or have, if they have more questions, um, we can answer all of them in the comments right here. But what are some ways that you feel like could be some first good steps to get in touch with third stage? Well, one way is to send an email to work at thirdstage-consulting.com. And you spell third stage, T-H-I-R-D stage dash consulting.com. So it's work at thirdstageconsulting.com. That gets, uh, that email gets routed straight to our, our COO and our recruiting team. And they go through regularly through those resumes and, and uh, expressions of interest. Uh, however, I would say, don't just send a resume and say, you know, I want a job at third stage, please see attached because that's not effective. But a better way would be to, to lay out explicitly why you're interested and what it is you like about third stage, why you'd want to work at third stage specifically. And by the way, this is feedback I'd give for you if you're submitting a resume to other potential employers as well. You want to be very personalized and do your research, understand who your audience is, understand the culture, the business model, and address that in your email uh, or cover letter because that's going to get a lot more attention. Uh, the other way, which is a bit more of a long shot, but if you're successful, it could work really well 
is if you message myself or Kyler on LinkedIn, um, that can be effective. Although I'll say I get tons of those messages and it's very rare that one stands out, not because they're not qualified people or I don't like the people or I don't want to respond, but just because the volume is so high and not many people take the time to differentiate themselves and really get my attention. So uh, that is another way you could do too. You, you don't have to do either or, it could be both, but th those are two ways you could get started. Excellent. Well, this is you know such a great interview and so important to talk about the future of digital transformation. We kind of talked about that urgency or desperation in the marketplace of, of organizations going through that and the more kind of independent, non-biased consultants you can put out there in the workforce is going to make them be more successful. So thanks so much for sharing your insight and, and overall um, career advice with um, these students, which are from my alma mater, which is a Colorado State, so definitely near and dear to my heart too. So we all appreciate your time in doing that, Eric. Absolutely. Yeah. And thank you as well. You were in the conversation, adding a ton of value as well. Sometimes, you know, college kids can relate better to the younger types like you, you know, the younger millennials instead of the, <laughs> instead of the old timers like me, the old, the old gray guys like me. So it, it's good to have uh, some, uh, some different perspective there as well. So, and thank you to the students, of course. I mean, they, they agreed to be filmed and they were good sports about it. And uh, there's another clip on my YouTube channel where I flip the script and I ask them questions. So it's uh we have one video of each one of them interviewing me and one of me interviewing them and asking them questions. So they're both both pretty interesting discussions. So hopefully the audience enjoyed that there. And uh, love to hear in the comments too, you know, what kind of, you know, if you're interested in consulting, what kind of consulting are you interested in or what questions do you have about consulting? So, you know, drop those in the comments. We will read those. I'd love to see your, your feedback there. So uh, thank you again for uh, another great episode, Kyler. Thank you to the audience for listening and the great engagement and comments uh, throughout the discussion. And again, you can find new episodes every Wednesday on LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, as well as audio podcast platforms. Be sure to subscribe, leave us a review, like the video if you're watching it on LinkedIn or YouTube or Facebook. Um, be sure to like it and uh, yeah, subscribe as well if, you, if you're so inclined. So thanks very much for your time. Hope you have a great week. We'll see you next week on Transformation Ground Control. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control number episode. Ah, do that again. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control episode number. Whoops, do that over. All right, thanks very much, Marcus. Let me try that again. Wow, I cannot talk today. <laughs> Marcus. Marcus. <laughs> wow.